everyone, this is Victor from Cyborg for Life, and I want to welcome you to episode 109 of Lemlingling Live, where the patients interview the guests. And today we have a very special guest joining us. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, I'm welcoming him back to the show. We have Dr. Quinn Schrader. Um, and if you guys haven't seen the videos that me and Quinn did on my channel before about the history of limb lengthening, uh, it was fantastic. So I encourage you to go back and check it out. But I'm going to give a little bit of background on who Dr. Schrader is. He's a fresh, eager podiatric doctor. He's originally from Indiana, and he attended undergrad at Purdue University. He did four additional years of medical school at Midwestern University and is now part of the Mercy Health Hospital system in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, Dr. Schrader is in his first three years of residency uh, specializing in foot and ankle surgery, including trauma, reconstruction, ankle repl replacements, infections, orthoplastics, elective procedures, and a variety of other pathologies. He's also a proud dad of a one-year-old boy. Um, Dr. Schrader is also an investigative journalist working on his first composite novel, which contains a collection of short stories that focuses on doctors, drugs, and medical teams that help keep people on, in this world on their feet and moving. So from prosthesis to osteointegration, all the way to what we care about, limb lengthening, his book is one of a kind that will garner the attention from the most advanced orthopedic specialists, as well as their patients alike. So without further ado, I want to welcome to the show, welcome back to the show, Dr. Quinn Schrader. Welcome back, Quinn. How are you doing? Victor, good. I'll tell you what, I had too much fun on this last few times I was here, and uh, why not run it back, right? Yeah, exactly, man. And today is a really special topic because uh, I think it's one that all limiting patients, whether they're prospective, current, or even past patients that are thinking about what they did and how could they have done it better, it's the topic of prehabilitation, getting ready for surgery and the best way for optimal results on the back end. So Quinn has a presentation today that he's going to take us through, and I'm going to let him do that. So Quinn, you ready for this? Yeah. You want to throw the screen on? Sure. Let me go ahead and do that. How's that look on your end, Victor? Looks good to me. I can see it clear. I hope everybody in the chat can see it, but yeah, we're good to go. Awesome. Awesome. We'll get started. Uh, quite a bit to talk about here um, <clears throat> from kind of one extreme to the next. And um, we're going to talk about prehabilitation, but we're going to really work our way up to that, Victor. So first of all, I've, I've already said, but I'm going to say again, I, I do love coming on here. Uh, you have such an educated audience that it's really a, a bunch of people that are eager to improve and they're eager about their health. And that's not always the case. Uh, when it comes to patients or prospective patients. So um, that's part of the reason I'm here. I love educating. I love talking medicine. I love talking science. And I love really making that data uh, easy to understand. And some of it might even be fun. <laughs> so <laughs> data can get dry and it can get boring. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what I'm here to do. And I'm not here for any financial gain. I'm, I'm here for passion. And I'm here because you as a good friend have helped me connect me to a lot of different doctors and patients and shout out to, I think, three of your followers on here that have helped <laughs> me uh, write the chapter on limb lengthening. So that starts with you and it finishes with them. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, I am a frequent flyer. I tune into pretty much every episode when I get the chance, even if that's kind of in the car or whatever. But um, today, while we are going to talk about prehabilitation, a word that's not really tossed around a whole lot, uh, even though the concepts have been there for a while, I am going to integrate limb lengthening, okay? So I do want this, I know that's the majority of your audience. I do want them to to get something out on that side of things. So 
Um, what's nice is so many, there's so many ways that I think doctors, myself included, can help patients outside of surgery and outside of clinic. And that's what I love doing. And that's why I'm here, you know, uh, to talk about other ways to improve their quality of life outside of just those, those office visits. So we'll kind of get started here. Um, you already kind of mentioned stuff about me. I'll say a few quick things, but this isn't about me. Okay. Um, <clears throat> to be clear, I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. I'm a podiatric surgeon. So I'm a foot and ankle surgeon. I'm a second year resident. I'll have three years, possibly a fourth for a fellowship that I'm looking into right now. And, you know, so everybody's clear. I don't do limb lengthening. I have done metatarsal lengthening, the long bones in the foot, and I've done some stuff with limb length discrepancy uh, <clears throat> that's tibial-based in the lower extremity. But um, I, <laughs> I'm not as cool as a lot of doctors you have coming on here, no. Victor. Um, Don't say that. You're, of course, super cool. <laughs> <laughs> I do think I can come in with kind of a different attitude uh, and really kind of show you that the different repertoire of skills that, that I'm building that I have and that I'm passionate about. So a few of the things I do uh, from sports medicine, this is an ankle scope here, an MRI on the, the top left, and I will go in and, and take a camera within the ankle joint or even the subtalar joint and do different debridements and cartilage work. I do trauma, anything from dislocations to fractures. Uh, my kind of stuff. So since I know you're saying I threw some of this in, I do do external fixators, usually for very complex pathologies of the lower extremity. A lot of it is charco, uh, which is kind of, a, in other words, dissolving of the bone. Uh, I do IM rods for um, different types of fusions and uh, revisions and everything like that. Uh, recently, I've been a part of, I think, three total taluses, which is replacement of the ankle bone. I think there's only maybe been 100... Uh, maybe maybe more than maybe 150 cases of that in the U.S. And I've now been uh, a part of three of them. Um, and then lately I've gotten into um, 3D printing. There's a doc I'm working with who has written a textbook on it, and he does 3D printed cages and, and these kind of mesh components that we, for people who have large voids, whether it's something like avascular necrosis or, um, <clears throat> you know, previous uh, bone voids from, from trauma. Any, there's all sorts of reasons that we can go take their foot or their leg on the other side of their body and uh, create an, an implant that specifically matches them. So it's kind of, the sky's the limit on that as far as what we can do. I know there's other branches of, of orthopedics that are doing some of that too. So mm -hmm. um, that's a little bit about what I do as far as some of the other things you mentioned. I do have a book in progress. It's temporarily titled The Medicine of Movement. I'm probably over halfway writing it by now, uh, about eight chapters in. I'm expecting 14 to 16 chapters by the end of this. And everything, like you said, from osseointegration to limb lengthening to bionics, uh, pharmaceuticals. I'm, I'm working right now with uh, paralysis patients who are the first three patients in the world to ever walk again after severed spinal cords thanks to a, a research facility out in Switzerland. Um, so it does not just by any means involve lower extremity or even upper extremities. It's kind of this full holistic view of, of movement, uh, really everything under the moon with that. Um, you've mentioned this before on, on your channel as well. Uh, you're making a documentary that I've been um, 
blessed to to do a small six to seven minute portion in there on the history of limb lengthening as based on one of my chapters. Mm-hmm. I'm very appreciative of that. That's on its way. I do have a provisional patent I'm working on for medical device. I'm not going to get into it, but a, a lot of stuff uh, really going on. Um, enough about me. Let's get on to why we're here, though. That's so, awesome. A little bit of an overview, and I can't see it, Victor. Am I centered on the screen? Yeah, you're, you're all good. All right. <clears throat> so uh, a little bit of an overview on what we're going to talk about today. And it's going to be several minutes before we actually get into prehabilitation because I really want to set the stage, all right? Um, we're going to talk about surgical stress and what actually happens, you know, once that incision is made. We're going to talk about risk factors that people can uh, try to minimize. Um, we're going to talk about diet and nutrition and, and some of the, the patterns that we recommend for that. Um, stretching exercise, a whole section on that. Cognition, the psychological side of preparing yourself before surgery. And then what I think is the best part of all this is I'm going to bring in some recent data. And I say recent with them. Exactly what we want to talk about. And as I've already, you know, um, alluded to, nothing that I'm going to say today is is new. Nothing is new. It is just a very different way of looking at some of the things that you preach every single week, Victor. <laughs> um, and I'm just here to support a lot of things you say with with that. So um, I think you're going to understand some of these concepts, uh, maybe or no brainers. But when we can support it all, um, I think it's going to go a long way. So to get started, up until the end of the 19th century, really it was prolonged bed rest and very little nutrition. That's what happened after surgery. People were kind of thrown in uh, to these hospital suites and they didn't really move around a whole lot, which wasn't really a good thing. And um, granted, back then they weren't really doing elective surgeries, okay? So (laughs) there weren't tummy tucks, there weren't knee replacements, there weren't pacemakers, and then there certainly was was no limb lengthening. But after surgery, they'd kind of get into this, you know, deconditioned state, so to speak, this um, muscle atrophy, this loss of strength, and really just kind of a poor overall um, state after surgery. And during the 20th century, we kind of found that the opposite was really true. And really, there's this sort of halo of health advancements and, and body restoration um, that we found could be helpful during and after surgery. And now we're really trying to discover these ways and we're trying to quantify what we're, what we're um, asking and we're trying to see our surgical outcomes really improve before they start and, and after they're finished. And that's, that's really where some of these ideas originate from. Mm. All right, so what is stress? So we're going to talk a little bit about feedback loops and homeostasis. And many of you have probably heard of homeostasis, but what it really is, is the body's way of maintaining stability in the presence of external stimuli. So those external stimuli could be a sip of water. It could be a pinprick. It could be a visual cue, any type of external stimuli. And our body has a way of kind of maintaining this 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 constant level that we can operate uh, well and regularly at. So I'm going to put in some charts here. And and for these specifically, I don't want you to really memorize the charts, but just kind of understand that there are feedback loops. 
throughout the body, positive and negative feedback loops that help control homeostasis. For example, when we have that stimulus like surgery, it sets off, let's see, Victor, I'm going to try, I have a laser pointer here. I think I do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I can see it. So, you know, we start off with the stimulus, whatever that stimulus, whatever that external or even internal stimulus would be, we have sensors all around our bodies that capture that stimulus. Those sensors then set off different effects um, throughout the body that all are recaptured and our body goes back in and readjusts everything. Okay. So there's probably thousands of examples in the body about this. I'm just going to throw up a few. Um, for example, if our body temperature exceeds 37 degrees Celsius, if we get very hot, nerves in our brain and our skin start to respond to that. And they then, uh, you know, they uh, target different regulatory centers in the brain, which does different things. For example, uh, they might activate the sweat glands to help cool you down uh, by perspiration. They might uh, vasodilate the arteries closest to the skin to help get the heat out. Um, they may change your breathing patterns. All sorts of different things can happen. And, and these feedback systems are constantly going on. Mm -hmm. I can talk about insulin regulation, okay, um, which is blood sugar. Uh, insulin is what controls blood sugar. So if we look at it here, we should have a normal glucose, and again, glucose is sugar, a normal glucose level in our circulatory system. But if that glucose level goes down, we have sensors that are activated in our pancreas that <clears throat> basically will begin telling the liver to uh, uh, break down uh, the storage form of glucose, which is glycogen, um, and returns it to the blood. So when we sense a drop in glucose, these different um, activities go on to raise the, the, the glucose level. Same with high blood glucose level, say after eating, we, again, uh, the, there's a stimulus that has, um, uh, affects a sensor, which leads to these different effects there down the line. And so if the glucose is high, we stimulate insulin and insulin tells our body basically, Hey, go pick up all that extra sugar out there. Pregnancy. Um, <clears throat> oxytocin, uh, is in the bloodstream. And when the baby starts to push on the cervix, it actually, our body understands that and really nerve impulses come back and say, Hey, we need more oxytocin. And that's actually almost a snowball effect or run away a positive feedback loop, um, of our one part of our body really listening to another. <laughs> Take the knee jerk reflex. We've all heard of this. I strike the patellar tendon. Uh, and your, your quads understand this, they send a nerve or a nerve that's connected to the spinal cord then says, okay, quad fire, meaning you extend your knee. And they also at the same time have to tell your hamstrings not to fire, right? Because if we're firing both at the same time, your leg's going nowhere. So mm -hmm. there's a feedback system to say, Hey, yes, you go. No, you don't basically. Um, these are all over the body. Uh, DNA creates protein. And after too much protein's made, that protein actually circles back around to the DNA and says, okay, we've made enough. Let's stop now. It's everywhere. Fevers are the same way. pH regulation.
calcium mobilization between the bloodstream and the bones, uh, even blood pressure. Feedback systems, uh, we could find examples of it all throughout the body, okay? So let's get back to stress. How does our body actually deal with stress? Well, of course, it's it's a feedback loop like I talked about. And on the bottom left here, this is, this is cortisol. This is a a steroid um, or a steroid derivative that travels long distances very well. Okay. So it can come out of one organ and affect lots of different organs. And there's basically for both for both cortisol, which is the stress hormone and adrenaline, uh, they stick themselves to billions and, and probably trillions. I couldn't even tell you how many, but probably billions and trillions of receptors throughout the body. Okay. There's there's organs that literally flag cortisol down and the cortisol sticks to them. And think of it almost like a piece of mail being delivered to these, to these other parts of the body, telling them what to do. And there's an axis here. The, again, this is stimulating the brain and they stimulate the adrenal glands, which are almost like these little hats on the kidneys. And once the adrenal glands make adrenaline and cortisol, all sorts of different things happen. Our heart rate goes up. All right. Our blood pressure increases. We're not as hungry anymore. Digestive system decreases. Our liver, which stores a lot of energy, is then kicking out that energy. And we'll talk a little more about that. And something like our bronchioles dilate so we can move more oxygen in and out of the body. And you think about anytime you're under a lot of stress, this is really what's happening. And due to cortisol and adrenaline and other hormones and other derivatives, this is kind of the, the macro of, of what's going on during this stress response system. So this is just another system within the body. And understand all surgery is stress, okay? The body goes into hyperdrive. Uh, even the, the smallest pinprick or the, the biggest trauma, it's, it's all surgery. And even if we're unconscious and have those effects dampened, all these processes these microbiological processes and these physiological processes are still going on. It can be just a incision from a scalpel. It can be a total knee replacement and a ton of swelling. It can be a, a fracture or a repaired fracture, whether it's small or big. <clears throat> uh, the body is, is responding to uh, stress in these ways. Mm -hmm. So homeostatic disturbance and a little bit more on the stress. So we two things can happen. We can have an anabolic reaction, which means we take small molecules and we build larger molecules. Okay. And this is how we store energy. Picture anabolic reactions like a squirrel that's kind of storing nuts for winter. Okay. When times are good in the summer and fall, it's got all these nuts and it's putting it in its whole you know, waiting for, for times to be bad, but to still have energy to use. This is the same thing. When, when times are good, when we're eating well, when we're dieting well, we can take all that extra energy and we can store it in our muscles. We can store it in our liver. We can store it in our fat. Okay. So anabolic reactions are kind of like triglycerides going to fat. It's, it's a storage form of energy. Catabolic reactions, on the other hand, are when we have to break these large molecules down into energy in times of need. All right. So we call this kind of a global catabolism. And really, there's a lot of negative effects of surgery on our body. Loss. All right. Uh, loss of muscle mass in general. 
decrease body weight some of these over long periods of time. But really, this is where our body says, oh my gosh, we what do we do? What do we do? And it panics and it starts breaking all these big molecules down into small ones so that they can go off and provide energy throughout the body. And really, if we attenuate, and this is where prehab is going to come in, if we attenuate that surgical stress response, we can minimize uh, uh, these factors, all right? We can minimize the breakdown in this huge release of energy. <clears throat> Excuse me. So understand too that this response is proportionate to the magnitude of surgery so that a longer surgery or a more aggressive surgery causes an increased response. And with that increased response, there's an increased risk to complications after surgery. Okay. So it's really kind of this, uh, this disturbance. It's a surgical storm of, of mayhem. And I want to kind of show you more of the micro side. We talked about it on the organ level, but what happens, uh, kind of, uh, I guess on, on a level underneath that. And we won't go through all this. And again, I don't want you memorizing this, but if we start at the bottom left here, understand that any type of injury to the skin immediately kicks this response off and it doesn't have to be surgery it could be a bee sting it could be anything else um, but once this happens we have nerves that tell the brain this is going on that then activates other little small organs within the brain that send out different cytokines and hormones so some of those go to our muscle. And again, they tell our muscle, hey, start breaking down your reserves. This is called glycolysis, which puts glucose in the blood, or proteolysis, which means we're actually, you know, the really expensive energy we have, the protein, the amino acids that we've worked so hard to store. When times are bad, we'll start breaking down protein as well into different byproducts. Mm -hmm. Lipolysis means we're breaking down fat and we're sending those triglycerides out there. Other hormones affect the liver, which again is a very large storage organ for many, many different processes. And that liver will go break down um, stuff into his uh, molecules, into his basic forms as it can. And what all this does is eventually gets glucose and other energy rich and energy available molecules in the blood, which can really cause hyperglycemia or really shoot up the blood sugars. And, you know, when I do surgeries on patients in the hospital, I'll check their, their, their blood, uh, their blood glucose level the, the following mornings. And they're usually very high and, and maybe for the next several days in response to, to this, uh, this can lead to insulin resistance and this goes hand in hand with insulin resistance, but this is the, the microbiological side of what's going on. Uh, when that surgeon makes that initial incision. And so it really, it's another way to think about all this, Victor, is it's an amplification of the fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. Really, That's really when I talked earlier about your, your heart rate going up and you're increasing your oxygen demand and all that. That's really what mm -hmm. we're right here. Takes me back to my biochemistry days. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love it. Perfect review. Now this is really, and guys, if you, if you notice what Quinn said there in that previous slide, the breakdown of proteins, right? Muscle breakdown, atrophy. So during limb lengthening, when you have those long sabbaticals, he's going to get into why you lose muscle and how you can possibly prevent some of that. Sure. Sure. So let's move on. So 
I've kind of created this, this another way to think about it is really the stratification ladder. And uh, this is just reiterating what I've already said. You could think about this ladder as kind of the extremes of, of surgery or of intervention. Take something like a flu shot or a needle prick, you know, a steroid shot, not terrible, right? Low risk and, and really low reaction to that site by the body. But we'd probably move up a little bit with something like um, removal of a, of a mass on the skin or something like that, you know, superficial, um, but but nonetheless still is going to create a, a stress response. But compared to like dental extraction or hernia repair, we really start to move up that ladder and surgeries become more dangerous. They become more painful. And the use for, for prehab is probably, um, uh, you know, it's probably, you can make a better case for it. The, the more extreme these surgeries get, take something mm-hmm. like replacement surgery of the shoulder, uh, very tough to recover from and, and very hard on the body. What I will say too, that I put pretty high up there is limb lengthening. Um, number one, because like Dr. Paley, and I think I've heard Dr. Rajbrook talk, it's 4D surgery, right? Yep. There is an element of time to it that we don't see in other surgeries. Um, you know, I, one thing I would compare it to would be like chemotherapy for, 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 um, for cancer. I mean, that's one thing that you can think of that goes over weeks or months, but as far as, you know, physical bone growing, there's not a lot out there that really matches it. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm on here today is that there's not a lot of better candidates out there for, um, that you can make the case for prehabilitation than, than some of, you know, your, your loyal followers here. Yeah. We won't get too much into this, but another way to think about it is burns. <clears throat> we have first, second, third, and if you want to call it fourth degree burns, and your skin is a very, very complex organs. And just underneath the skin and the dermis and the hypodermis, that's where we have hair follicles and we have blood vessels and we have all these little sensory organs. And, you know, something first degree, say it's a sunburn, mm-hmm. not a big deal, you know, it'll create a little bit of stress, but not terrible. But if we start getting down to a stove burn or even think about a full body burn down to the bone, then we're really starting to talk about, like I said, this stress response and and hyperdrive, um, things that we we probably can't even really fathom. So, um, and in doing that, think about these third and fourth degree burns, all these important structures, millions upon billions of them probably that are now out of commission and that our body has to possibly try to work to fix um, if it can. So um, again, all these, and, and even just a small incision, you know, you know, just even scarring, some of that cuts down through uh, these important little structures and, and causes this response. So mm-hmm. a lot going on, a lot going on. Yeah. All right, Victor, I've talked enough. Let me, let me put you through a little extreme scenario here. All right. <laughs> what would you do? If I warned you right now that your bedroom were to catch fire in one hour, oh, then you're going to hop off this call. All right. What else? What are a couple things you would probably do? Going home, you know, calling the fire department saying, get to my house, get my dog out of there. Anybody? Yeah. So we're evacuating. Okay. Agreed. Agreed. And yeah, sorry to throw this little thought exercise on you out of the blue, but. (laughs) 
And I don't mean to sound like macabre here or anything, but I, I want to try to illustrate a point. So if I was told, if I told you in one hour, no matter what you did, your bedroom or your attic was going to catch fire in your house, there's at least some time, right, to, to try to um, make things better there. So first of all, you're going to make sure your family's not in there. You're probably going to remove any pets from the house, any... Uh, prize possessions would probably come out. Um, you're going to either get a hose ready or call 911 or find the nearest fire fire hydrant, right? Get any memorabilia out of there, warn your neighbors, you know, you, you name it. There's a lot of things that you're going to do. Maybe even call the insurance company. I don't, whatever you can do in an hour, there are things that that are available to you in order to decrease the damage, right? And mm-hmm. Uh, there's really, uh, there's many things that you wouldn't be able to do if I didn't give you that foresight. You know, if you're, right. if all of a sudden your your house just caught fire, you wouldn't be able to do those things. So this fire in a way, let's just say an upper bedroom, this fire is like uh, an extreme surgery, like limb lengthening to where you have a part of your body literally under fire and out of commission for, for quite some time. And you know there's going to be damage, right? And you know the stress response is coming like we've talked about, but you can minimize that damage as much as possible and you can really get ahead of the game. And so if we step back and talk about prehab again, that's really what we're talking about is prior to all this mayhem coming to your body, what can we do in those you know, several weeks or several months to help prepare you to be ready for it? You're not going to, you know, you're not going to stop the fire completely, but you can come out better on the other side by, you know, making sure your family's not in there, saving your prized possessions, all that. Hopefully that analogy makes sense to you. I love that analogy. Yes. It made very, a lot of sense. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. And so fortunately for elective surgery, whether it's carpal tunnel surgery, whether it's bypass surgery, or whether it's limb lengthening, we do have the luxury of kind of saying when and where that surgery occurs and, Fortunately, we can, if we want, and if we're driven to, can prepare ourselves for it. Mm-hmm. So um, how can we make rehabilitation more manageable and what steps can we take? And I, I like these couple quotes here. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. I think that was a Benjamin Franklin quote. And then the next one I'd probably like even more. Spectacular achievement is always preceded by unspectacular preparation. <laughs> So really what that means is great achievements start with kind of that boring backroom effort, you know, the stuff that other people aren't going to see and really that pride and and that attitude. And in college, the the house I lived in with 22 guys, uh, we had a (laughs) saying called the seven P's or some people call it the six P's. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's proper prior planning prevents piss poor performance. And Uh, yes, uh, that's probably never been more true than in something like surgery. So I will also say from the doctor's perspective that the happiest patients that I have and that I work with are the ones that do their homework and are very prepared and they prepare their bodies. And there's nothing more satisfying than that. And even going into something like a surgery, when I know I have a patient in their greatest condition or or the best condition they can put themselves in, that's really uh, relieving to me as well. I think a lot of surgeons would agree with that. Mm-hmm. I kind of just threw this up. I made this just the other night to, to kind of illustrate a point. 
if we were to look at your surgical course, say it's about six or eight weeks, uh, let's just say it's a knee replacement since we'll talk about those quite a bit. Eh, it'd probably be more, but you have maybe 1% of the time where you are in PO, which means nothing to eat or drink. That's the night before surgery, okay? The actual mm-hmm. surgery is going to take half a day. Let's just say it's that. And then the immediate recovery from anesthesia and all that's going to maybe take another day. And I'm just throwing out some numbers here. The rehab, you know, the long rehab to get you back to where you were, that's the majority of the surgery, right? And if we can make sure we're at our best position for that 97% here, I would argue uh, that would be a good thing. So the surgery itself is short and uh, it's, it's everything else afterwards that, that um, is, is really the, the long, hard road. Mm-hmm. So big picture here worldwide, there's 230 major surgeries each year. And wow. I say likely to increase. There's no doubt that's going to increase. Uh, we have a grain population, right? We have the baby boomers um, that are entering the hospitals and really overflowing the hospitals these days. And um, think about this way. On average, with those numbers there, on average, every person undergoes six surgeries in their lifetime. Wow. So if you think about it, statistically, we are all preoperative patients, meaning <laughs> statistically, we're all going to be operated on. Now, I've never had any extreme surgery or, or really any surgery. But, you know, I talked to a woman from my book last month who I think has been on 70 or 71 surgeries now. Oh, my gosh. So, um, you know, there's a good chance we're all undergoing surgery to some extent uh, in our lifetime. So, and there's always this, this push for, for better outcomes. And one of the big focuses up until recently has been how do we maximize efforts uh, intraoperatively and postoperatively, meaning how do we do better in surgery and how do we do better after surgery? Well, let me tell you this, after surgery is not, not always an optimal time, right? That's not really the time to uh, prepare yourself to do better. After surgery, patients can go through a lot of different things and maybe for different uh, spans of time, but depression. Um, a lot of patients do go through post-surgical depression. Some may have high anxiety afterwards. Some may have forms of insomnia. Maybe it's due to the pain or the medications that they're just not sleeping well um, mm-hmm. or sleeping too much. I mean, there's there's it, people respond all sorts of different ways and a lot can even be another one would be fatigue. Right. So when patients are going to be caught up and we've worked on this with our documentary with with Rich and stuff that, you know, he kind of goes through what some of those really tough months were like postoperatively. And I would argue that's not really the optimal time to introduce uh, new interventions and, and really accelerate recovery. I think a lot of this mindset and these goals can be achieved before. Yep, I agree. All right. That was a lot of uh, foreground stuff. Let's start getting actually into (laughs) rehabilitation. Here we go, guys. This is the main part, so pay attention. All right. So I'm going to bind it into three subjects, um, and there can be many subdivisions within this, but really it's going to come down to exercise, nutrition, and cognition. And we're going to talk about all three of these things uh, in, I think, a decent amount of depth. All right, Victor, if I had to pick out 
other than some of the research I'm going to show at the end, if I had to pick out one slide that I want you to really understand, it, it's going to be this one. All right. I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a minute on this because when I throw up a graph, I'm not just going to throw it up. I'm going to make sure everybody understands. And while I'm explaining this, if there's anybody in the audience that wants to ask a question on this graph specifically, or feels I didn't do an adequate job explaining it, put the question in the chat and we'll talk about it real quick. But let me break this down. This is the theoretical model for prehabilitation. And this is really a visual in how we understand how to accommodate or reduce that, that stress response. All right. <clears throat> so on the bottom, we have time. This is our x-axis and our y-axis. On the bottom, we have time. And there's four phases that they have listed here. The prehabilitation phase. So this is our time before surgery. We have the actual surgical procedure. And none of this is to scale, but these are just to, to help visualize. After the surgery, we have the rehab phase. And then we have the post rehab phase. All right. So time on the bottom, these four sections, before surgery, surgery, after surgery, and kind of long term thereafter that. On the y-axis, we're looking at functional ability. So uh, the easiest way to think about it is this is how a person um, can perform the activities they need to do. So if we look at this blue dotted line, this is the minimum level of functioning. So if you are above this line, you are able to do what you need to do, right? Mm -hmm. If you're below this line, you are unable to do those things, all right? So this is kind of the line that the more we can be above this line, the better it is. So in a non-prehab patient, in a traditional patient, <clears throat> um, they are basically at a, you know, a, a level above functional activity, hopefully, for elective surgeries. But as they reach that surgical procedure, it's right after that that they really kind of swoop into this, this really tough state that, you know, they're unable to go to the bathroom by themselves. They're unable to walk without assistive devices, um, all sorts of different things that they cannot do. So they are really below this functional level and they require assistance from other people. They then go through the rehab phase where they really start day by day building themselves back up and the post rehab phase where they can return to hopefully their preoperative level of functioning. Does that make sense so far on that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love this chart. This is like everything that I've preached, but in chart form, it's beautiful. It, it is. It is. I, like I said, I'm saying nothing new here today. I'm just trying to, to come at it from a different way. So I yeah. put in this new green line here. Okay. And this is our prehab patient. So again, if we have these patients starting out at the same spot, the prehab patient, let's say for six uh -huh. or eight weeks is going to really try to maximize their functionality. They're going to try to get themselves to a better state, um, not only of mind, but also um, of physicality, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So that when that step two and that surgical procedure hits, yes, it's going to knock them down. It's going to knock mm -hmm. them down a lot. But our goal is to not knock them down too bad, right. you know, to not knock them down too far so that they can bounce back relatively easy and maybe better than ever. And what, and that's, what's going to help, you know, um, maximize, uh, the rehab phase and hopefully they're on. So these are kind of the tale of two patients and this is just the theoretical model. That doesn't mean 
it's true. It doesn't mean it's true for every patient. What I will show is some, some newer data that does support this in the orthopedic field um, pretty well. Um, but this is kind of what we can think about as, as the concept, the reason behind prehabilitation, getting us way up high so that when we're knocked down, we're not knocked down too far. I love it. Sound good? Yeah. So guys, do you, if you guys have any questions about this chart or um, if you are a prospective patient thinking about surgery and you're looking at this chart and you just don't understand something, feel free to, you know, put your question in the chat and I'll bring it up and Quinn can uh, answer it for you here. Dr. Schrader can answer it. Uh, let me see. Anything? Nothing yet. All right. Well, we'll keep moving along. And if you guys pop in the chat, we'll, we'll answer them later. Sounds good. Sounds good. So um, here's another way to think about it. This is another theoretical model. <clears throat> um, and this is on cancer patients was kind of where this was generated. And something I won't talk about too much here, but prehabilitation, actually a lot of the um, uh, academic studies out there are in, are in cancer patients and general surgery patients. Yeah. And it makes sense. Those a lot of times are the patients um, that are very thin they are cachectic, you know, they are, um, have no muscle mass. They are very, uh, fatigued. They're tired. And these are the type of patients that prior to a big procedure or chemotherapy treatment really need to, uh, get themselves to a better state, so to speak. So I won't go into this one too much, but you can think about it as charging the battery, right? Mm -hmm. If we're down at a low level, if we can charge that battery up to a much higher level, then when the treatment starts, it knocks us down again, but mm -hmm. that can help us reach a higher level later on. Gotcha. So there's another way to kind of think about it or, or understand the chart I just showed. So here's another kind of, kind of ladder, but this is a little different. This is a ladder of optimization that I'll kind of explain. At the bottom, we have modifiable risk factors. So these are risk factors that everybody should be able to at least try to adjust, okay? <clears throat> um, I'm going to mainly talk about sarcopenia, mm -hmm. anxiety, and, and smoking. And you could also throw drinking into this. But And there's other types of comorbidities that um, you can adjust, start adjusting today or, or with your physician, you can start adjusting. And after we adjust those, we can then start focusing on our cardio cardiorespiratory function. We can start focusing on building muscle and really increasing our functional capacity all around. So this is kind of that ladder um, that we look into um, for prehab intervention. Something else to note is that the number of modifiable risk factors that a patient has is associated with higher risk of complications. So the more it's it's in the literature, the more comorbidities or risk factors you have, it is, uh, I, I should say fact, there is a greater chance of you having a poor outcome either in the immediate future or, or in the healing process after surgery. So we're going to talk about most of these sections here and really we're going to Build synergy. We're gonna we're gonna uh, say how one relates to the next and why they're all important. So let me start with modifiable risks. And Victor, you've told me prior to this that you have a lot of um, you have a lot of patients that ask about smoking prior to living. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I get questions every week about it. Yeah. So let's let's start with smoking because I 
I love talking about because there's great data out there on it and we're not going to go too much into the data, but let me try to make it make it clear to everybody. So with smoking, which is a modifiable risk, right? Uh, you might not be able to change your body mass overnight, but you can change the fact of whether or not you smoke or you can at least start to try. Smoking is definitely associated with some of these things I list here after surgery, decreased heart and lung functions, infections, delayed healing, blood clots, trips to the intensive care unit and <laughs> need for further surgery. And I can tell you definitely without a doubt, unequivocally, smokers that I've been a part of operating on, there's a much, much higher chance they go on to needing further surgery or not healing from the surgery in the first place at all. Mm-hmm. This goes for cigarette smoke, vaping, and and all, all types of nicotine, really. Oh. So what does smoking actually do to the artery? So here is a non-smoker's artery, okay? I want to point out a, a few things. We have this very linear inner lining of the artery, and this helps that blood flow in, like I said, in this linear fashion. Um, there's a lot of these striations. We have different cells oriented in very organized fashions outside of it. And we even have other muscle that can help expand or contract an artery. So it's, uh, there's, there's a lot of different levels within your vascular system. Okay. On a oh, chronic smoker's geez. artery, this is what it looks like. Let me just point out a few things. Number one, look at the diameter of the healthy artery and the diameter of the pathological artery. Jeez. Much, much smaller. Okay. So, and that happens immediately every time somebody takes a, a, a smoke or a puff. Wow. All right. There's almost these, this, this muscle around, this smooth muscle almost chokes. I mean, literally constricts, chokes, almost hangs the, the, the artery, making it tough for blood to move. There's, there's different types of plaque that build up on the inside, which can later get kicked into to embolisms or, or, or anything like that. And really just look at all the disorganization. Look how we have these cells in this perfect alignment along the outside and along the inside. And here, it just looks like a, a droopy, disorganized mess. You can't really tell what's what, and the layers are kind of bleeding into each other. And so I don't say this to scare any of your, your followers or, or patients on here, but um, I, I try to be a reasonable guy and, and a reasonable doctor with the patients I talk to. And one of the things that I tell them that Hey, I understand you may not be able to quit smoking right now, right? And I'm not gonna shame somebody for that. And um, but I'm, I'm gonna try to work with them on it. And what I do tell them is, let's do this. Let's try to reduce the number of cigarettes. Okay, if you're a pack a day smoker, let's try to take to three quarters a day. All mm-hmm. right. And I tell them, okay, if you can't do that, how about this? Work on this for me. Smoke your pack a day but let's try to take half the number of puffs per cigarette, right? Mm-hmm. That cigarette's still going to burn and burn out. I, I believe I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't know. <laughs> but, but like I said, every time somebody takes a puff of, of smoke, your, your vessels are constricting. Um, and it takes a long time for them to look like this, but in the immediate setting, uh, you're getting less oxygen to other tissues in your body. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the regenerate, you guys look at on, on, on your lengthening patients, uh, when it comes, you know, everything that we talk about on non-unions, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of times that can be attributed to 
not only smoking, but other comorbidities. So wow. um, let me let me put this in another way for you. Here's the back of a knee, okay? And here is the main artery, the popliteal artery that runs behind the knee. So it runs from medial to lateral, so to speak. We have the vein and the tibial nerve as well. But I want to focus in on the popliteal artery. When I was a third-year student, I was doing a vascular rotation, and I was in on this surgery. And I put this picture up because I think this is a very strong picture. Here's that same artery, okay? Here's the, the popliteal artery. If you look closely, you can see the femur, and you can see the condyles here, which match the condyles here. And you can see that tibial plateau up top and the tibial plateau here, okay? So you should be oriented pretty well. So this is what the artery should look like, okay? But we were in on a smoker. He was probably 50 years old and smoked most of his life. And before the surgeon did this, here's what that artery looked like. Whoa, that's okay, crazy. So it is. It is. So blood oh. is coming down, and then his artery probably looks something like what I just showed on Jeez. the last slide there. And what happens is your body begins saying, okay, how do we get more blood down to your leg and down to your foot and down to your toes? And it really starts building these collaterals that bypass that bad area and pick back up down here. So this is what we came into. And after uh, the work, this is what we were able to restore. Notice once it was ballooned open, the other, all those other little vessels shut down. So mm -hmm. You can think about it like this too. Uh, number one, the blood's going to get down there usually, but it's going to run much slower at a much lower velocity or even at a, a higher pressure. So none of this, none of it's good. Yeah. You can think about it like this too. Um, when the road, when there's a roadblock, right? And we have yeah. a highway system for getting stuff to and stuff from. Uh, when there's a roadblock, it really causes congestion and causes jamming. And yes, if this is you right here, Victor, uh, in Maryland, you might get home that night, but it could be two hours late, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so are you still getting there? You are eventually, but it doesn't mean you're getting there efficiently. And, and all this is really the arteries, the roads, it's all, it's all gummed up, so to speak. Wow. So um, I don't have a better way to convince you not to smoke than, than a couple of those figures I just showed. I love these analogies. As you guys can see, you need blood flow for bone healing. And uh, when you smoke, you're pretty much inhibiting that big time. So take Quinn's, Dr. Schrader's advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, last slide on that is there are ways out there, um, counseling and, and even nicotine replacement therapy that um, can help you get there. All right. And I think most of us know this, but sometimes it just takes a little push. So I did put these in here. These are some up-to-date quotes from uh, WHO or the World Health Organization. Smokers who quit approximately four weeks or more before surgery have a lower risk of complication and better results six months after. And that's wow. not a lot. If you've been smoking your whole life, if you can, and I and I tell patients this too, that I'd really prefer you to stop smoking and I've heard other surgeons say, can we get you to stop smoking at least for, for a month or more? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Down here, I highlight as well, every tobacco-free week after four weeks improves health outcomes by 19% due wow. to improved blood flow. Okay, so that four weeks is a big mark. And if we can get there, uh, it can really optimize your outcomes. 
I put this chart over here on the side. We won't read through all of them, but quitting smoking three months before, it's proven that you have a better, faster recovery. Uh, three months before, wound infections go down. Eight mm-hmm. hours before, oxygen levels actually return to normal. So um, there's there's all sorts of reasons to to quit smoking. Yeah, um, I, I love this chart right here. I mean, if you think about it, everybody asks, I mean, the messages are saying, how long out from surgery should I stop smoking? At least a month, but you have there three months before, you get even a better outcome. That's incredible. Thanks so absolutely, much. Absolutely. And there's some other good information out at the bottom of that is after one year, your your risk of heart disease is halved, 10 mm-hmm. years, lung cancer is halved, and 15 years, you're almost back to someone who's never smoked, which is wow. hard to believe. Um, probably depends on how long someone has smoked, but um, wow. these are rough numbers. Like everything I say today, nothing is black and white, but, right. um, but yeah, yeah. So next we're going to talk about next modifiable risk, sarcopenia. And what sarcopenia is, is really a loss of muscle mass or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, having amount of muscle below what somebody your age and body type really should. And there's a lot of reasons we can lose muscle mass. It can be age induced, which is, you know, more of a, uh, fragility syndrome or something like that. Um, can be surgery induced. Like we've already talked, it can be from malnutrition. Uh, it can be from, uh, med school induced, um, <laughs> I think I lost, I feel like I lost a lot of muscle mass too busy studying in med school. So there's other things from metabolic disease to uh, weight loss. Um, And I won't get too much into this. People can snap a picture if they want, but it can come down to mitochondrial dysfunction, which is, you know, we all know it's the powerhouse of the cell or the battery of the cell and oxidative stress, reactive oxygen species, some of these buzzwords that are thrown around. Cellular senescence, meaning the the ability to reproduce and grow cells can go down as well. But a lot of these things can lead to sarcopenia. Mm. And while it maybe is something more associated with age, I think it's still worth mentioning, even for younger, healthier patients, like a lot of the population you work with, that building up that muscle mass, there's good reason to do it. Here's some other things that can cause sarcopenia that we're not going to go into. But let me take you through this. This is a slice of uh, the thigh. And on the left is a young, healthy thigh muscle. And and notice there's just a little bit of fat, the dark black, a little bit of fat on the outside edges here. And the rest of it, you know, muscle and bone, um, just simply put. But notice on the sarcopenic thigh over here, how much fat has now taken up Mm. the proportion of the extremity. Okay. And not only just circumferentially, meaning around the thigh, but look at how it started invading in between the septa of the muscle. And really, um, it's just an overall less healthy state. So this is what, you know, atrophy that you mentioned earlier, or loss of muscle mass really looks like. It's kind of this invasion of of fat cells and, and just not as, um, oh, just not as healthy of tissue, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. that what we would we would like to see. And this can be measured in many different ways, um, but but overall, we don't want to have low muscle mass prior to surgery. And here's another look at it: <clears throat> when we're early ages, you know, young to to adolescence, really, that's our time that we build up 
that muscle mass. And again, this is time on the bottom here and muscle mass on the top. And right around 25 or, you know, a quarter century is where we are, uh, we've peaked and, and what muscle we have likely is going to be about the most fit we are at that time. And each decade, we actually lose muscle mass thereon. And it's kind of this natural senescence. And really, muscle mass decreases approximately 3 to 8% per decade after the age of 30. And it's in even much higher decline as we reach 60 and 70 years old. Um, and yeah, we can talk about the muscle, but let's think about what else that means. This can lead to balance issues, right? This can lead to the inability to use crutches or, or canes or get around the house well. This can lead to less cushioning of the bone. So things like hip fractures can go up and and really <clears throat> overall poor health. So there's a lot of things that, that can go into And I'll mention one more thing on the next slide. So skeletal muscle takes up about 40% of body weight and 50% of total protein in the body. So we have protein everywhere. We have it in a lot of our organs. I mean, every cell in the body has protein. A lot of it's stored in the blood, albumin, you name it. But 50% of it is in our muscles. So it's a huge reservoir and a huge bucket or, or storage area for protein. Um, and I put a little chart here on the right. And some of these papers I'm, I'm referencing, uh, Victor, I've, I've put mm -hmm. a little snapshot of them up here. So if anybody's interested in going to see more, they are more than welcome to. And they also just back up that whatever I'm saying, there's a reason to what I'm saying. And, and I've tried to make that point clear that <clears throat> I really want um, – to support and, and back anything I say here today. Um, so you can look at what happens with different amounts of muscle loss at 10% decreased immunity. Okay. At 30 to 40%, you're more likely to have pressure ulcers and pneumonia uh, and even your risk of death goes way up. So um, I don't think most of this is happening in limb lengthening patients, but for say your grandmother that's uh, undergoing fracture care, or a hip replacement or something like that. This can be very important information for them. And I mentioned it just a second ago, but one of the newer things coming out, there's a literature coming out about the immune function of muscle. And we don't think about muscle as an immune organ like we would, you know, the spleen or something like that. But mm -hmm. muscle actually produces a lot of factors that can help with immunity. And by having overall greater muscle mass, you are really able to battle infections better on top of better movement and better strength and, and more energy. Um, and what I'm saying may sound extreme, but <clears throat> it is, um, it's all part of the process of surgery. And so muscle also stores amino acids. And like I said, what is surgery? It's trauma. And whenever the skin is opened up, even for a slight second, there's always a risk of infection. So I can't tell you better reasons than that to really maximize uh, your overall muscle capacity uh, prior to surgery. You know, Quinn, I'm getting some really good, you know, questions that are popping in my head. Yeah. That we can relate about, uh, you know, muscle mass and um, metabolism, which I think you have in your quoted paper there. Um, you know, one of them is, you know, 
we know that muscle is a metabolic tissue and people always ask, well, if I do limb lengthening and I do grow new muscle, um, is that going to increase my metabolism? And I know this paper here. So if you guys check it out, there might be something in there that talks about the upregulation of, you know, your metabolism because of, you know, muscle mass. So I think something like that. Did you find anything in there, Quinn? No, I mean, let me step back and think about it logically. Here's what I would say. Um, I, I think, I think there could be some merit to that, but here's the way I'm going to think about it. Let's say your patient gets three inches, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at what proportion, even if they grow new muscle there, what proportion of that compared to their overall muscle mass is very low. Mm -hmm. and I don't know if it's really going to make that big of an, a difference on immune function and, and all that. There's, I, I'm sure there's not a study out there <laughs> on it. Maybe Dr. Paley's put something out there on it. I don't, I don't know of anything. Um, now, if we start talking about six inches or we start talking about, you know, patients with achondroplasia mm -hmm. uh, that are doing extreme, extreme lengthenings to where they really may be gaining a lot of muscle mass, maybe there is some merit to it. Okay. Uh, I'm talking more from a, a physical therapy side of it and just bulking up. Gotcha. Um, I think you're going to increase your immunity much better by, um, by, you know, hard workouts and, um, decreasing your, your, your BMI and increasing your muscle mass than you are say from gaining a few inches during lengthening. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, I, you know, I can't point to any one thing, but that's what I would answer that. Gotcha. And then another question is, you know, I know some of the patients here might be thinking, oh, so is Quinn saying that I should build a lot of muscle before surgery? Isn't that what the surgeons say don't do because it might actually increase my muscle tautness or tightness too much and inhibit my flexibility that I need to get through lengthening safety, safely? Um, I'm on your side. I think that building muscle before surgery is a big thing that patients should do to a certain extent. Um, but do you have any information or at least can you extrapolate any ideas from that? Yeah. What I'm going to say to that is, uh, I still would, I think I would prefer a patient to, to number one, bulk up as much as they can, uh, increase their cardiovascular system in general. So those are what the benefit is. But number two, you got to, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. You got to make sure you're stretching. So yeah. that any new muscle mass you're bringing on, you are also stretching to where gotcha. I really think the two, I shouldn't say cancel out. I think they're going to, you know, as long as you are also doing your stretches, I think the muscle mass is only going to benefit you from there. That's awesome. Thanks for that. I'd be interested to see if, if, um, anybody else or any of the other physicians on, uh, have a, have a different, um, answer that again, I don't do limb lengthening. Um, but for just about everything I would do, if a, if a patient could put on, five pounds of muscle prior to, I'd be ecstatic. So <laughs> don't quote me on the limb lengthening side of it. Okay. That's good. Good input. So how do we, how do we maximize our, our skeletal muscle before surgery? And here's how beyond working out, we'll also get into a little bit on nutrition um, <clears throat> and, you know, kind of those macro and, and micronutrients. So I stole some of this from one of your websites, Victor, because I was lazy <laughs> this the other day. But one of the first things you say is build habits. And um, most of us have probably been in sports. And when I wrestled, I was told that the habits I build are that's what's going to translate to wins, right? And what you're doing in the gym uh, when the lights go off or when everybody else has gone home is really what's going to translate. So building good habits 
as far as nutrition goes, even if we don't talk about what that nutrition is, the fact that you are trying to diet and trying to better your overall gut health, so to speak, uh, I think is, is the big point there. Nutrient dense foods is something else I know you talk about a lot and I'm not a dietitian and I'm not a, a nutritionalist or anything like that, but, um, you know, protein, carbs, and a certain amount of fats and uh, more on the micronutrients, having the right vitamins, minerals, and organic acids. And you talk about this macro rationing too. And I don't know if you have any words to say on that, but kind yeah. of divvying up your portions, timing your eating, those sort of things. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that you uh, have it all here. This is incredible. I think, uh, thanks for bringing this up. I mean, nutrition is huge for any type of surgery. Um, I've preached it on the channel many, many times. I'm, myself as a natural bodybuilder, if I didn't have my nutrition game locked down, I wouldn't be as far as I am in, in the sport. But um, I think that everything you have here is correct. I think, you know, whole foods, micronutrients, really, you know, vitamins and mineral rich foods is really crucial to kind of the, the, the building blocks that you need to repair muscle, uh, bone, and all the soft tissues after surgery. But the macro um, ratios or rationing is one of the overlooked components of nutrition. I think it's a way that you can kind of look at the three different macros, protein, carbs, and fats, and figure out what works best for your body, but at different parts of the surgery, right? Because right after surgery, you know, what happened? Your body, like you said, Quinn, had just undergone a big stress event or a traumatic event. You just got yourself, your legs broken. And if you can kind of focus on what type of nutrients you can eat, more protein, how much carbs do you need? Well, you're needed for physical therapy, but you're not going to be moving out around as much as you were before surgery. So you can probably shave them down a little bit. And how much fat do you need? Well, you need some for cellular health. Um, fat also has, you know, uh, anti-inflammatory properties. So it can kind of help, you know, reduce some of the swelling and inflammation after surgery. So if you find that sweet spot, that ratio that works well for you, which is going to probably be a higher percentage of protein, because literally protein is the building blocks of almost everything in the body. Like Quinn said earlier, if you can kind of figure out that ratio that's worked, works well for you, you can really kind of speed up or expedite the recovery uh, on the back end of the surgery. For sure. Well said, Victor. Well said. And I even found this picture of you. Sure. How <laughs> many years ago is this? Is this I think this is, uh, no, this is definitely back when I shot for Limb Lengthening Secrets. I think this is 2021 or 2020, actually. Yeah, it's a couple years ago. Yeah. I was way younger. <laughs> I, I stole some of this, too. I didn't feel like typing it all out. I figured yeah. your, 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 uh, your followers could snap a picture of that. But you talk about some of this in your road to resurgence. The, a few things I wrote down, battling free radicals, of course, um, carbs for energy, monosaturated fats, omega-3s. We talk about those all the time. They're good for skin healing. They're good for heart health, um, dark greens, nuts. Um, I, I wrote this down here, Victor. You even say in your video, the more fit you are going into the procedure, the less fitness you are going to lose coming out of it. That's prehab, baby. So yep. uh, we'll know, you, know why you have me on here. You've been preaching. No. You, you got the data. This is the academic. I need science to back me up. And Quinn, Quinn, uh, Dr. Science Schrader's is on its way. way. We've been talking about <laughs> science is coming, though, Victor. Uh, speaking of science, here's another, pa uh, another paper. I, I found a lot of good information on prehab in there. Um, but nutrition, again, can ward off age-related muscle mass. And there's um, a lot to say for preoperative carb loading and what that does. It reduces insulin resistance. One of the first slides I talked about was how we get in this hyperglycemic state and 
you know, we do have um, at least a temporary resistance to insulin. It's good nutrition creates that anabolic state. Remember the slide there where we are taking smaller uh, molecules and we are building them into storage molecules that we can uh, place at spots in our body and pull from them when we need to. And nutrition enhances mus muscle function. This is one of the universal recommendations that I recommend. And I think uh, a lot of other docs do um, for patients, especially going into surgeries, 1.5 grams per kilogram of protein a day. In case anybody out there was wondering, um, I think you can even go higher than this, but you should at least be trying to reach this to make sure, like Victor said a second ago, you're really upping the protein in your body. Uh, there is also stuff to be said about immunonutrition, um, which there's there's some data out there to say it shortens the length of stay in the hospital and does promote wound healing. Uh, glutamine, arginine, those are two of the amino acids, omega-3 fatty acids, nucleotides. A lot of this can improve health in different ways. One of them, which we're not going to get into anymore, is the microbiome and supplying the good gut bacteria um, that help you digest and, and really serve functions that we're just now beginning to learn about. They fight inflammation, uh, which is no doubt happening as soon as surgery does, and they can obviously help decrease that surgical response that we keep mentioning. I just threw this up. This is um, what I use when, when people ask me, um, about nutrition. <clears throat> These are my dietary recommendations. And, uh, there's a Dr. Rodriguez that I work with who I, I look up to a lot. And these are some of his, his recommendations about well. colors of the rainbow, right? That's the simple way to think about it. stick to colors of the rainbow. When it comes to foods, <laughs> no simple carbohydrates, no fried foods, no soda. We know these things limit the white foods that you're taking in, stick to the healthier stuff. And one of my favorite sayings, meat should swim or fly. <laughs> uh, that is the healthiest meat is the ones you find in the air, in the ocean. Um, so if you're ever in doubt there, that's something you can think about. Different types of juices, beet, honey, ginger, lemon, watermelon. Some of these juices are or have been shown uh, to likely increase blood flow, which we've already talked about why that's so important. Mm -hmm. Some other supplements that I will sometimes recommend, uh, protein shakes, I don't think they're going to do you any harm drinking one or two of those a day. Vitamin D, which is important for so many functions in the body, um, from blood to bones to to kidneys, 5,000 units a day, I think is fair. I've heard some recommend up, I think, to 10,000. Mm -hmm. uh, and really a healthy individual, uh, I've heard it stated this way, but probably can't really overdose on vitamin D. That's not to say nobody does, but if you... Uh, even are taking 5,000 or more, uh, it's going to do nothing but good for your body. <clears throat> Zinc, magnesium, um, great elements to have, um, as well as some multivitamins, taking uh, one or two of those a day. Mm -hmm. um, one of uh, your media followers, Victor, reached yeah. out to you yesterday um, or at some point and asked, about HMB. And if I could talk about that, and I have one slide on it, I don't know much about it. But one thing I do have access to is virtually any academic paper out there. And so when I hear things or see things on the internet that I say, I'm not sure if that's true. A lot of times I will jump onto 
PubMed, Google Scholar, or other mediums to go put whatever was said to the test and uh, fact check, so to speak. Yeah. So HMB uh, is really a leucine, and, and leucine is a, an ami a, a amino acid. It's a, an essential amino acid, one of one of the several, but it is a byproduct of leucine. Um, and it's got a very complex name. I, I can't even uh, say, and I, I didn't even write it down to say what it is, but there's really, I put this chart up. You can find it pretty quick on Google images. Um, but what it basically says is there was really no uh, superior gain um, to any kind of leucine supplementation. Mm -hmm. All right. And I do have a paper on here uh, that supports that. The paper, <clears throat> does HMB enhance body composition in athletes? Which I I think a lot of your followers probably are, are on the higher end of the, the health um, spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think this could be a decent representation for it. And this is a meta-analysis and a systematic review, which I'm going to talk more about what a meta-analysis is in a little bit. But just understand that meta-analyses are strong uh, pieces of work because they encompass a lot of different um, trials. And basically what it said was um, the analysis suggests a small, non-significant effect of HMB on fat-free mass in athletic populations. So non-significant, meaning they really couldn't say much to it. And if you look at these bars over here, these are our standard deviation bars. Notice that there's not much difference in, in the, the leucine versus the, the HMB, but also just in, in general, um, the positive effects of HMB appear to diminish when protein intake is adequate, okay. which I think is a more important statement that if you are yeah. getting that 1.5, 1.6 grams of protein a day, it's probably null and void whether or not you're taking this supplement. Yeah. Um, there is no data out there for HMB and prehabilitation. I, I specifically looked for that. I didn't think there would be, but just want to reiterate that there is not um, and it doesn't really seem that superior to other muscle growth strategies. So, um, by the way, if anybody has specific questions on some of these supplements, I am more yeah. than to let Victor know, email yep. me. I have my email at the end of this and more than happy to look some papers up the best I can find and either help it, help you interpret them or send them Victor's way or your way. And, and either way we can, we can get it to you. Um, there's a question on stem cells that, um, somebody sent in, um, I didn't even do any research on it. There may be some research out there on it with prehabilitation, but I'm not going to get really into that. What I will say is I think stem cells are a good thing and they do a lot of good things. And the fact that we have cells that are omnipotent or pluripotent, meaning that we have a, um, we have a very simplified, simplified version of a cell that can grow into just about any type of cell we want is usually a good thing. So yeah. um, like I said, somebody had sent a question on that. I'm not going to get into it much more than that, but it's also a very good thing to promote healing. You know, Quinn, on this, um, actually on one thing on this HMB thing, actually yeah. I, there was some things when I first got into bodybuilding, they said that beginners who start training can actually, they do find that there was some correlations between like increased muscle mass gain with it uh, initially within their first six months when they were a beginner. Um, then, you know, but then I did a paper on uh, leucine and then, you know, the use of glutamine along with it to stimulate the inventory pathway and, you know, signal transduction. And I remember that leucine, you know, is pretty much the king 
amino acid in terms of like muscle growth. So your 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 uh, statement here of being leucine with whey protein is far superior than HMB for long term, uh, I guess, muscle growth in the in the long term. So this is this is really good information that you have here. I'll, yeah. I'll probably. Um, you well, know, let, let me use... clarify. It's it's not superior. Yes. Oh, okay. It's not, it's not oh, okay. And really, what this shows is is leucine is neither is showing slightly favorable results of leucine yeah. over HMB, but nothing is statistically significant. Significant. Yeah. The, that's so, what I had, and that's what I tell people all the time: is if you eat like a whole food diet good amount of protein you really don't even need to take all these amino acids i know like the athletes out there they're like well can i still take my branch chain amino acids or essential amino acids sure you can it's not going to hurt anything but if you're eating a whole food diet you know like you're getting your protein like swimmer fly uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh meats you're, you're going to be good there so um, i would tell any patient the same if they said doc i'm taking hmb i would say go for it yeah even right if just, even if it feels better in your head and maybe it is helping you all right i'm not here mm -hmm. to say it's not by any means but um, I do think it's only going to do good for you. I, yeah. unless, I don't, unless you're taking way more than what's recommended. Um, but as this final statement here says, and, and again, you mentioned people just coming into bodybuilding mm -hmm. or working out. Maybe it does have a different effect. This, this mm -hmm. study here, which wasn't, like I said, was a meta-analysis, which is one of the, the best highest level studies we can do. This was on athletes, which, you know, are not, are not newbies in that realm. Um, but on, on trained, trained athletes, uh, yeah, seasoned they athletes, mm -hmm. athletes, they didn't find much difference. Yep. I agree with that. That's awesome. All right. You also had one send in, um, asking about BP, PC one fifty. Yeah, that's that's oh. one that I was. Yeah, that's a big one that's been asked multiple times a week, uh, probably for the last six months. I can say. Okay. All right. Uh, again, I will say I, I researched it extensively. Nothing on prehabilitation, so nothing okay. on what we are discussing here today. And I didn't find any good meta analyses, meaning any big pockets of data on it. Um, what I, I will say is this, is that it's an angiogenic growth factor. And what an angiogenic growth factor is, angio means vessel, all right? Gen means to generate or to make. So it is a growth factor that helps make blood vessels, helps get more oxygen to an area of concern. And it does this through what's called VEGF, which I don't know if you're familiar with VEGF, Victor, but it's a, a vascular endothelial growth factor. And very important molecule and the upregulation of that happens when areas are hypoxic, meaning mm -hmm. they don't have good tissue perfusion or oxygenation or VEGF is very uh, prominent when there's new growth, say in the embryonic stage um, gotcha. or during uh, infancy, when there's a lot of growth going on. Um, if you even go back to that picture, I showed earlier remember where the blood vessels are running around mm -hmm. there's probably a component of high vegf in that area now that's not for a good thing but <laughs> vegf is what basically tells uh tells your body hey we need new arteries here because there is a higher demand for it either number one because the patient's growing the patient's working out or number two uh, because we have a blockage in the system that we need some some workarounds on <laughs> so I did throw up this one paper. It's from 2009 um, that I, I actually, I, I liked what I saw on BPC 157 more 
the, the HMB. But let me walk this through. It's boring. We're going to go quick through it, but I want to make sure whoever that patient was that they understand. Mm -hmm. So I just put in the last paragraph of what they found in this study. So this study evaluated the angiogenic potential of BPC-157. What that means is can it and how well does it generate blood vessels, all right? In the early post-injury periods, BPC-157 therapy induced a prominent increase of angiogenesis in rats, which had their Achilles tendon transected or their quadricep muscles uh, transected and in rats with crushed muscles. So those are the, the um, basically the surrogate that was used for, for this part of the study. This was consistently visualized with different endothelial cells, antigens, FV3, uh, which is a modifier on the inside of blood vessels, VEGF, which I've already talked about, um, and um, oh, C, yeah, CD34 is, is the other one. Mm -hmm. um, so generally, BPC157 increased the number of VEGF, CD34, and um, FV111, positive vascular elements, and angiogenic response was regularly augmented and shifted towards the left, okay? So VEGF is a great thing. CD34 is involved in leukocytes, which are white blood cells. So the adhesions of leukocytes to get, to basically grab onto the vessel and get into the soft tissues to fight infection. Um, and then, like I said, um, the other one is, is, is uh, I believe it helps start the clotting cascade. Uh, I, it's been a while since my biochemical days too. But, yeah. uh, so last couple of sections here. On the other hand, results obtained in vitro. In vitro, the easiest way to think about it is in a, a test tube or in a Petri dish. So results obtained in vitro conditions using human endothelial cells, which are the inner lining of the blood vessels, show that there is no direct angiogenic effect of BPC157. Interesting. All right. Wow. So, in the test tube on human cells, they found no direct effect. Lastly, the angiogenic potential of BPC-157 seems to be closely related to the healing process in vivo, which is kind of interesting. In vivo means usually um, within the organism with BPC-157 stimulating angiogenesis by upregulating VEGF. So it all comes down to the stimulation of the growth factor VEGF and creating blood vessels. So kind of confusing. Um, as with most of these supplements, really hard to gain true understandings or, understandings or quantitative analysis of what they're doing. And, you know, when we're uh, transecting or, or uh, cutting a Achilles tendon on a rat, it's very hard to make any kind of inference on is that helping the mm -hmm. bodybuilder that's putting it into their body. Yeah, you know, Quinn, I, I, this is fantastic. I think that you're 100% right. That's the same type of studies that I found when I did a, uh, you know, I looked up you know, BPC-157 way back when. And why did I look it up? It's because when I tore my pec tendon off of uh, the bone, <laughs> the humerus bone, proximal humerus, um, way back in 2020, I was pretty much like, the end of 2021 um uh you know i did a video hey guys i tore my pec tendon and there's been people who were looking into this bpc 157 they said hey victor take take this this, is, this should help uh because other bodybuilders did it and i was like what's the study you know what's the data on that and i did look up and i found that um vegf did go up it's, it was upregulated 
However, um, I think that, like you said, an avascular tissue, like white tissue, like tendons, that's not very, you know, it doesn't have as much blood flow. Maybe there is something to it, but I was like, what about bone? You're the bone expert here. So like, it doesn't, bo isn't bone, doesn't have really good blood flow naturally. So yes. is there, yeah. So talk about like, no, how there, there definitely can yeah. be. So we supply tendons and you're right. There are, uh, avascular regions in a lot of tendons, or there are what we call watershed areas in a lot of tendons. Uh, and in general, tendons uh, and ligaments, but but especially tendons, just don't. That's that's number one. Number one, that's why they don't regenerate well. That's yeah. why ACLs take you out so long, and why Aaron Rodgers still isn't back uh, at the end of the season when he tore his Achilles. So there is poor blood flow. Tendons receive there is blood flow, but it's just mm -hmm. poor a lot of times. They right, do receive right. their blood flow from adjacent muscles, uh, adjacent muscle bellies, or the what we call the periosteal blood flow. So this is the blood flow that's on the exterior of the muscle. So where that tendon comes down and attaches into the muscle, mm -hmm. there are blood vessels that kind of retrograde to that tendon. Mm -hmm. So take the Achilles, for instance, there's a watershed area, uh, about three to four centimeters proximal to the attachment site. So you have your heel bone, your Achilles tendon and your calf muscle. Mm -hmm. And it actually, the Achilles tendon gets some blood flow from the heel bone and some blood flow from the calf muscle. But there's this whole area in it that it just doesn't, you know, between those two spots that it just doesn't get good blood flow. Mm. And um, so, yeah, uh, it probably hopefully answers your question in a roundabout Absolutely. way. Tendons uh, do eventually receive oxygenation. But um, yeah, that's number one. That's that's why they take a long time to heal just because... <laughs> They have high requirements, but but um, a low fuel system, so to speak. Right, and you know the the surgeon that did operated on me, and he you know put cortical screws into my bone, put the tendon back. He says the best place to tear it is off the bone because of what you just said, the periosteal blood flow. Because if you tear it in the middle, it's actually almost worse because of the retraction from both. It's that watershed area. The blood flow is a lot less, um, you know. Uh, sufficient essentially um, and then sometimes if you tear it from the muscle itself it can be hard to reattach but um, yeah that's fantastic thanks so much for your input shout out to one of our old videos Victor we talked about Ilozarov was a, a big uh, I should say discover but a big supporter of finding out how muscles and tendons mm -hmm. and bones um, receive blood supply Absolutely. Um, and as, as crazy as and I don't mean to gross anybody out but the, the 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 best tasting meat on a t-bone is the stuff closest to the bone right it's it's really the stuff getting the best vascular flow um so uh, again not to gross anybody out on that but uh, it makes sense when when you think about it absolutely and guys if you have if you don't know what quinn's talking about we actually uh dr schrader and i we did a uh History of Elizarov, History of Limb Lengthening with Dr. Elizarov. Um, I'll post those links in the description. You guys can go check them out later on. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Elizarov was not there. I wish he was. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We were a little late on that. But All right. <laughs> to our next segment. When people think medicine, all right, we usually think pills. We think doctorly advice. We think prescriptions. We think, oh, my gosh, I need surgery to get better, whatever it is I need to get better, right? Here's the thing. Exercise is medicine, all right? And may be the greatest, best medicine out there. What we've had with us since the dawn of humanity may be better than any magic pill or magic 
bullet, magic bullet pill, whatever you want to call it, that's out there. You know, good homeopathic, natural exercise is probably the best medicine out there. So just remember that. Absolutely. And it's and it's amazing what so many of these drugs, how they shift in equilibrium or homeostasis that yes, they may make you feel better or make you perform better, but you're probably losing something in the process. Exercise is one of those things that's micro trauma to your body and your body builds back up stronger. So keep that in mind. All right. So for completion's sake, I threw on, and we talked about this earlier. I said, I'd talk about stretching. You asked the question. It was a great question. Should you not gain, you know, some muscle mass prior to surgery. And again, I will not speak for the limb lengtheners out there, but I will speak for uh, anything I do. And I would, I would absolutely love that if patients took that initiative. But mm-hmm. what I would say with your question on limb lengthening is any type of muscle building they're doing, they need to be stretching with it. Tight in, tight out, right? If you're tight going into the surgery, you're damn sure going to be tight coming out. So we won't stay too long on these, but I, I threw a, a few stretches that patients can do to help maximize surgery for limb lengthening. Here's one. It's just a groin stretch, kind of awkward groin stretch, so to speak. It's stretching the inner thighs, and really it's these adductor muscles. So these are the muscles that pull your legs in that you're trying to really elasticize. I'm not even sure if that's a word, but you're trying to make it more elastic. Okay. And this is going to allow your bone to stretch, um, and be much more receptive and ripe for, um, limb lengthening. When you're doing the stretch, have your weight back, have your back straight and really push yourself to the limit and keep those knees wide and at 90 degrees. But, uh, those are a couple of the adductor muscles there. There's also others. Another stretch you can do is hip flexor stretch. And this is Dr. Mary Miller. Victor, I've never met her. Again, I stole her her uh, little exercise uh, stretch off her website. Yep. Uh, so that's her there. I want to make sure I give her credit for it. Absolutely. But, um, uh, here's another one you can do. Uh, this this is a great stretch because it, it, it hits so many muscle groups, okay? It hits your quadriceps. It hits the psoas, muscles that extend from the spine all the way down to going across the knee. And even this sartorius, kind of your, your Indian style sitting muscles, so to speak, uh, it can really work those groups. So um, stay looking forward, keep your knee at 90. Something else you can do even is kind of raise your arm. And that really gets that that iliacus and that psoas that can really help kind of stretch some of that as well, which is all connected to those femurs. So anybody doing femur lengthening, you have to address all these. Absolutely. Hamstrings. We're we're all familiar with the hamstrings. Uh, Here's another stretch you can do. Keep your back straight, lean forward, feel that pull. Okay. There's three muscles on each side that you're really trying to, to, um, like I said, stretch, um, you can rotate your knee in and out your whole, I should say your whole leg in and out, which can kind of hit one, uh, or the other side on, on the medial lateral sides. Um, and so, yeah, just know with stretching, you, you know, you don't need to be Simone Biles. Okay. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to, uh, be able to bend backwards and touch your toe. You, you just need 
to set realistic goals for yourself. Last stretch I'll, I'll talk about is the runner stretch. And this is one I go over with patients all the time. Very important for your tibial lengtheners, okay? Or your qua, um, your uh, quadrilateral lengtheners. Mm-hmm. But this stretch here helps prevent equinus and does that in a few ways. So notice on this one here that the leg is straight all the way through. And what that does is it locks out the knee joint. And this is stretching your gastroc where the muscle belly is much more proximal. And the reason we have our knee straight is because the origin of it is up above the knee joint. All right. What's it? And you've had surgeons come on and talk about this. What's interesting about the gastroc is it crosses three joints, the knee joint, the ankle joint, and even though most don't even know it's there, the subtalar joint, which is the joint below your ankle joint. And when you don't stretch this, not only can you get equinus, but and you've had patients on before that have had complications that actually have uh, varus, right? They yeah. go with varus at their ankle mm-hmm. uh, uh, due to something like this. And, and a lot of that can also be through the subtalar joint, which is how our foot goes in and out. Our ankle joints, how it goes up and down, mm-hmm. how it goes in and out. So that pull, having too tight of a gastroc or soleus um, can cause that. So that first part is how we strengthen the gastroc. The soleus, on the other hand, originates underneath the knee. So really, to truly stretch this muscle, you need to bend your knee, all right? And you should feel that that stretch pain kind of move down the leg. Um, but you have to hit both of these. If you skip one or if you just stretch the gastroc, you could set yourself up uh, for failure or just for less than adequate outcomes or mm-hmm. tougher uh, rehabilitation. So... What I mentioned earlier, not only are you building muscle mass and, and optimizing your overall health status, but you should be stretching with it. Absolutely. And Quinn, you bring up a fantastic point. Like I was always good about stretching my gastroc, gastric pneumus, uh, you know, back in bodybuilding days. But before lengthening, it was still the gastroc only. But I didn't really focus on – I did see the calf raises. I did get some – in workout stretching, you know, but I never did the solely stretch directly. And I did develop a little bit of ballerina. Thankfully, my surgeon did catch it in time. She said, Victor, you better get on this. And I started to do that, you know, with a bent knee, with a stretching strap, and I was able to kind of mitigate that issue. But you're right. If people start stretching your calves before surgery to prevent equinus, like uh, Dr. Schrader just said, do both the gastroc and the solely stretch here. Yeah. Ballerina foot can, can definitely happen. Um, do any of your patients, Victor, wear night splints? They do. So a lot of the limb lengthening clinics, they actually force a lot of the tibial lengtheners to wear a night splint at night, you know, to prevent those contractures. I had to wear one. It was a molded cast, but it was just to keep it at neutral so that you didn't get that plantar flexion and that Aquinas. Let me throw this out there too. I wasn't really planning to talk about it, but uh, night splints are a great thing. Uh, we use them for all sorts of stuff, not only Aquinas, but plantar fasciitis and a lot of that. Mm-hmm. This picture right here, though, when, when patients are looking for good surgeons and good doctors, because um, I know you talk about that a lot on your show, and they're always <laughs> looking for, for what they're recommending. What, what I would probably recommend is that these night splints need to go up past the knee, all right? Because yep. there's a lot, of, an, a lot of night splints out there that go up to the calf or so. Yep. When you do that, you are missing the, you know, the, the head of the gastroc. Mm-hmm. So, and I assume a lot of most patients use longer ones or do you know, do you see both? No, they're actually, most of the ones that I, I think they are BK, they're below the knee, but my, yeah. uh, mine was, uh, 
full length. It was up to the upper mid, uh, the upper proximal portion of the thigh. So I was okay, but you're right. A lot of them are below the knee. And maybe, uh, you know, and again, what I, what I say doesn't go for everybody. Maybe doctors have their reasons for it. Um, but what I would recommend, uh, is probably going up past, up past. The now, now, now the, the, I guess the more experienced clinics do, do pass the knee. Um, I think sure. the ones, yeah, yeah. So you're good. You're right there. But I think that the lesser experienced clinics may miss out on that. So you, yeah. it's a good, good point. Very, very good point. There, something to look out for. Maybe something to ask your surgeon about. Say, hey, you know, uh, are you okay with an above the knee night mm -hmm. splice just mm -hmm. so I can capture the gastroc, right? And yep. I, I think that's a fair Absolutely. That's a question I would love to hear a patient ask me. <laughs> no, I could nerd out for a minute on it. But. All right, moving on. Optimal regime has not really been defined. So I put this up here uh, just to state that we are all so different. Victor, I could run 10 miles today. You've told me you can't. You could yeah. bench press. I, I don't know. How much do you bench press? I could do about over 300 pounds, like 315 or so. Okay, whatever it is, I can't. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> what working out is for you and what working out is for me are two different things. It's also, I would know what areas to focus on that I lack, probably on the, the musculoskeletal side of things. And maybe you would be more on the cardiovascular side or the endurance side. So mm -hmm. I don't throw out any hard numbers here. I try not to. I kind of try to give you an idea. But what, what you need to do as far as exercising three to five times a week, um, you need a, a good exercise session. Those should be anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes, including your warm up and your cool down. And they really should be a combination of strength and aerobics. And if yep. you think you're lacking on one, do a little more of that one and a little less of the other one, or, or go over that 30 to 60 minutes. I, I don't think you're going to hurt yourself. So let me throw out one other thing that we didn't even talk about. Mm -hmm. I wrote this quote down because um, I pulled it from a paper because I, as, as the surgeon at the end of the bed, um, I forget about the patient up at the head of the bed sometimes. That's the anesthesiologist's job. You know, they have them intubated. They're giving them the propofol. They're keeping them asleep so that the rest of us can do what we need to do. But here's another reason why we keep talking about the trauma of the surgery, right? <laughs> when uh, Dr. Paley or Dr. Robbins goes in there and breaks the bones and begins stretching it and all that. The anesthesia, and this probably applies more to the elderly group, but the anesthesia, two hours of general anesthesia is about as hard on a patient as running a five kilometer race wow. running as fast as you can. Oh, All right. So when we send patients for surgery, we're typically either getting clearance from the cardiovascular team or cardiology, or we are getting clearance from anesthesia, especially for sicker patients, because they, they stratify these patients into groups. Are they low risk, moderate risk, high risk? And there's all sorts of different systems for how they do that. But just know that beyond the physical trauma that we're thinking about during surgery and that stress response, the anesthesia itself, just for two hours, is pretty darn hard on the body too. Absolutely. I mean, you guys, I mean, granted, limb lengthening surgery, hopefully, I don't think it takes that long. Um, but what, what's a typical surgery, uh, reconstruction surgery, let's say, of the ankle for you, take Dr. Schrader? Yeah, so I mean, I do simple things from, you know, stuff I showed earlier, which is a little more complex stuff to very simple things like toe amputations and bunions. I mean, I, I do the whole spectrum. Uh, mm -hmm. Those can take 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, the ankle replacements can take up to a couple hours, the mm. total reconstruction, you know, taking out a, a tibial nail, 
putting a patient in a frame, sometimes combinations of the two, um, those can take quite a while, and oh, wow. three, three to four hours. I mean, Jeez. Um, now maybe part of that's because I'm a resident. And so the doctors I work with let me do the work and I'm not <laughs> as quick. Um, but I mean, there's surgeries out there. We're not talking orthopedics, but there's surgeries out there that um, have are half a day to full days. Sure. I mean, there's, wow. there's no doubt uh, long, long, very, very specialized surgeons and surgeries out there. Um, no, I, I would hope... Um, I would think limb lengthening, uh, you know, you've been in some of the, uh, surgeries where they're doing, them. I'm not sure how long those took. I, I bet it, I bet for both legs, it probably approached, I would guess two hours. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Right around two hours. Yeah. 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 But you know, um, but you know, if little things go wrong, can it approach three, four hours? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So that's even more stress, more stress on the body. Absolutely. So with the exercise, there's different approaches. You can focus on heart rate. You can, a lot of people are getting into HIIT training, mm -hmm. which I just put a little bit of what HIIT training is in here, high intensity interval training. This is where we really alternate between uh, moments of heavy exertion and less exertion. And we try to get our heart rate up to 70 to 90% um, during those, those heavier times and 50 to 60% during those lighter times. And there's a lot of data. Um, I can't quote you anything, but there is a lot of data coming out supporting HIIT training. And I think it's really making its wave. Mm -hmm. It's it's good. It's good. That's awesome. Uh, strength training as well. You can do weights. You can do resistance bands. I don't think we've talked much about that. And just make sure to target specific muscle groups. Uh, do I think you need to be, you know, maxing out your bench presses for limiting? <laughs> Again, just to build muscle mass, I think it's healthy, but, um, you know, it's all about time, right? We only have so much time in the day. And if you really need to focus uh, on one area, focus on what matters. Yep. Know too that there are uh, clinics out there, uh, professional uh, trainers, professional physical therapists that can um, help, that can, that can help uh, keep you on track or keep you on a good regimen. Um, I will say home's not always the same, you know, when you're doing stuff at home, people aren't as driven. Sometimes Victor, I will send people to physical therapy and they'll say, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to do my stretches at home. I'm going to do my ABCs that I'm supposed to do, or I'm going to do my resistance bands. I trust me. And I'm not going to walk on it. I say, oh, okay. and, 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 you know, I, I, I try to believe them. But a lot of times I send people to physical therapy two to three times a week just so that I know they're doing it. Okay. I sleep better at night. I get reports from the physical therapist on whether or not they've been there. Um, and having somebody there like a spouse or a professional to really, this goes for anything in life, right? To really mm -hmm. drive you um, can be huge. So uh, people that think they might not be compliant with something like this, they really want to, you know, maximize their health. Uh, just know that those options are out there too. Yeah. And, you know, Quinn, you, I mean, I, I don't know if they've missed it, but like the, the last two points you made here are super important. I mean, strength training, you said focus on the areas that matter most. Think about what you're going to have done. Your legs are going to be out of commission, right? So they're, <clears throat> you can still train your legs, but you're going to want to also optimize your your upper body, right? Because you're going to be pivoting, pushing yourself out of chairs, getting in and out of the wheelchair for the crutches or walking devices. Um, so, you know, you can work on your triceps and your shoulders and your chest. So, what, what Dr. Schrader just said is so important. you got to focus on what surgery operation are you going to have. And if it's your arms you're getting done, then, you know, your legs are going to be standing up without your arms. So think about that. And then also what he said, 
doing it at home. A lot of people are complacent. They don't do it. They're not motivated. So going to a licensed professional, like a physical therapist or personal trainer or something like that, they can kind of kickstart that motivation inside of you and get it going because you don't want to miss out on this crucial prehabilitative uh you know phase where it can really kind of like you know dr schrader said earlier it can help you recover better on the the back end so very good points no you bring up some excellent points too and i don't want to you know mislead your your audience um you, you bring up a great point that yes you are pivoting transitioning and shifting with upper body Mm-hmm. Uh, and vice versa, you know, if you're doing upper body and you're needing stronger legs. And, you know, some of the other reasons to, I'll point this out, the financial investment that you have in cosmetic or elective surgery uh, can be great sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. can be very high. It's like, is it probably worth a small fraction or percentage extra mm-hmm. to do something like this, you know, whether it means buying healthier diets, you know, some of these diets are awesome. They're just expensive, but mm-hmm. maybe in the short run, it's worth yep. it. Um, there's also, there can be a lot of pain with exercising and stretching. That's what people don't want. Sometimes it's the pain that comes with it to where if you have a licensed professional helping you with it, they can really help push you through that pain and keep you in a more positive mindset and, and a, a just overall uh, better um, um, physical stature, I would say. 100%. I mean, there's all kinds of meal prep companies out there and things like that that can make the, the task a lot easier. <clears throat> yeah. Yep. Very cool. Uh, just a little bit on cardiorespiratory fitness and, and kind of what this is. Studies have shown uh, that car- your cardiovascular system is – the strength of that is the most powerful predictor of mortality. It's more powerful than smoking, more powerful than high blood pressure, more powerful than obesity. So what's your heart, the health of your heart is one of the best, if not the best predictor out there on how you're going um, <clears throat> to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, the theory is you, you increase your cardiovascular capacity. This should lead to higher functioning perioperatively and perioperatively mm-hmm. just means in the surgical setting, meaning before, during, and after, uh, and it all makes sense, right? If we exercise, okay, we really build up our cardiovascular system. Our stroke volume goes up. Perhaps our heart rate may, may go up a little bit to help oxygenate and may go down if our stroke volume is going up. We get better um, AV perfusion, meaning your arteries, which are dropping off oxygen in your tissues and your capillaries, and then going to the venous system. All right. The dichotomy between arterial supply and venous supply goes way up because you are just funneling so much growth factors and so much oxygen to the area. And of course, this this really strengthens our VO2 max, which is kind of the one everybody sees on their rich on their, um, on their wrist, on on their watch these days. Mm -hmm. And really just, it's, it's an indicator of the maximum amount of oxygen that your body can carry. So um, these all make sense. And we talk about all the time. That's just a little schematic on, on, on how it works. And of course, with the skeletal muscle adaptations, you're increasing your mitochondrial content and, and just your ability to absorb oxygen. So all those little transporters, all those little um, funnels that oxygen comes through, you know, our body even has ways of, of duplicating those so that we are just able, we're, we're willing, our body is almost asking for more oxygen. And all these are, are great signs of health. 
Absolutely. And again, guys, <laughs> Dr. Schrader's dropping some major, major golden nuggets here. But if you catch that, cardiovascular fitness is crucial to any type of surgery. Not only, I mean, it's blood flow, but what is, what's so important about the blood flow? It's carrying those nutrients from your healthy diet directly to the injury site, the site of stress, right? So you're going to recover a lot better, a lot faster if your nutrition's intact. And I mean, a lot of people just, they eat junk food during the, the surgery and they're like, well, my bone's not healing. Well, <laughs> maybe change up your diet. So all the things that Dr. Schrader's saying, if you put them all together, you're going to have a better uh, turnout. So, Yeah. And the best surgeons you have on here, Victor, uh, Dr. Reef, who we've talked to before, you've had yep. Dr. Rajbrook on, I've already mentioned uh, some of the other guys down there in Florida, but even the best surgeons, you can't do a surgery without nicking a couple little vessels. And I'm not talking <laughs> stealing arteries. I'm, what I'm saying is there's going to be some sort of vascular compromise locally that you need to have a powerful heart. You need to be sending all those either VEGF or other growth factors to the area just to help start angiogenesis or the regrowth of blood vessels around it. So uh, you got to think about that too, that the arteries and the veins you went in with, the arteries and veins are still there. The capillary, yeah. the small yeah. little bridging between them. Uh, you can't do surgery without compromising a few of those or even some of the, the intramuscular um, vessels. So, uh, you know, you're already starting out behind the eight ball once you come out of surgery and the better nutrition and the better fitness, the, the mm -hmm. better you're going to be able to um, uh, regenerate um, the vascular supply around that area. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Victor, we've been waiting for this. And uh, I guess if, if, if uh, research to uh, fast forward to it, they are more than welcome to. So let me start by saying <clears throat> everything I say with, with, with research, I, I try to not really say it within a vacuum, so to speak, but I, I try to generalize and be broad with it. All right. First of all, there is no prehabilitation research on limb lengthening. Maybe you and your connections can try to get a study going. That would be great. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing on limb lengthening. So what, what do we have to do? Well, we have to look at other surgeries and how patients respond to those surgeries. Does that mean that's the same cohort of patients that may be getting limb lengthening? Absolutely not. Uh, is that better than running tests on rats? Probably so, you know, so um, you have to take it all with a grain of salt. But I have, I think, three or so papers in here that I want to share with you. All right. Know this, too, that nothing in science is ever scientifically proven. OK, you see all the time things will flash up on your phone. You know, scientists solve or scientists prove this or prove that. <laughs> Nothing, unless it is a law, like the scientific law of gravity or the scientific <laughs> law of energy. If I pick up this ball, it's going to fall, right? That is a law. Everything else, everything else in science is a theory, okay? okay. It is something that's not proven, but scientifically supported or not supported. And so I'm always, you know, and I've, I've probably already said a couple times through this, I'll say something's fact or whatnot. Still, still, I, I probably even need to be careful with that, that um, things are either heavily supported or, 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 or not, or, or somewhere in between, obviously, but very rarely is anything proven. So I don't want anybody to come away from what I'm about to ready to say and say, well, you know, Dr. Schrader got on and said, uh, well, new replacement data, subjects always do better. That is not true at all. We have to uh, understand that 
we're never going to know the answer 100%, right? We're, we're never, but as time goes on, we're going to get more data added. And some of these things are going to become more clear, but rarely or if ever I, I try to get out of my vernacular, do I say something is proven? All right. Yeah, so yeah. we want to start with that. Um, that all studies, no matter how pure they are, need to really be examined critically. Okay. And so one of the things I want to do is put a few of these studies up and I want to say what's, what's good about them. Also what's bad about them. Um, but why they're some of the best of what we have out there. Okay. So the <clears throat> study is also up in, in the, uh, the top right here. This is a level one study, which is high uh, as, as high of a, a level as you can have. So that means the evidence here is pretty good. It's in a peer-reviewed journal, meaning um, other doctors and researchers have critically taken a look at this and, and um, um, uh, also, you know, helped interpret the data to make sure that it is as unbiased and as, as um, um, represent as well as what we can do it. So what it is, we'll just start with this study. This was based on total knee replacements, okay? There's a lot of data out there on total knee replacements. Don't quote me on this, but it may be one of, if not the most um, researched uh, procedures uh, in orthopedics in general, because so many of them are done. I think over a million a year, it might even be like 1.2, 1.3 million wow. uh, knee or hip replacements are done. Uh, and that's probably going to go up. And I talk about some of that in my book. But yeah. um, so know too that it's a great procedure because we can test all sorts of different things on it. And we have relatively uh, reproducible outcomes that make it a good way of, of using it to then add in other factors, okay? So this, this paper here looked at total knee replacements. What they had was 44 subjects, all right? And they split those 44 subjects into two groups. Group one went through prehab, meaning they went through eight weeks of training. And I looked it up. The training was um, three days a week for eight weeks um, with uh, certified physical therapists on board helping them, okay? So true... Um, uh, monitored uh, prehabilitation. They did 15-minute warm-ups, which included joint movement, step-ups, calf raises, cycling. Uh, and then when they got into the actual exercise for the rest of the hours, leg presses, knee extensions, curls, hip abduction exercises. Okay, so a pretty, a pretty in-depth uh, prehabilitation program. I, and I do think the average age of these patients were maybe around 65. Uh, I'd have to actually check the paper again but, you know, an older population, but uh, they did it for three days a week for eight weeks prior to getting their replacement. Group number two had no training. All right. So we have a split. We, we have 22 patients of the 44 that trained and 22 that didn't. And the researchers were blind to who was doing it. So they could not influence the, the outcome uh, consciously or, or, or unconsciously. And then they measured a lot of the parameters. Did I explain that all right? Does that? Make yeah, sense? no, that's super clear. Yeah, two different groups, uh, 44 people, so 2020, 2022. Yep, yep. So um, let me throw this up here. One of the first things they looked at was knee flexion and extension, okay? So our, we have about 140 degrees of flexion capability mm -hmm. at the knee, all right? So uh, one of the areas we lose 
range of motion in uh, after a total knee replacement, obviously, is knee flexion and, and knee extension. The This paper was very bland, and that's why I'm here <laughs> to put it in a more interesting form for your audience and, yeah. and try to depict it in a way that's understandable. All right, so I took this huge freaking uh, group of stats, and I actually mapped it out for you so that I can show uh, everyone on here today or that's going to watch this down the road. We appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. So this is the control group and the intervention group, okay? what Before I get into what this is, here's what we looked at earlier, Victor. This was our theoretical model uh, right? that I yes. spent a lot of time on. Yeah. Look how perfect the, the theoretical model and the, um, the actual data kind wow. of appear, right? If, if you squint your eyes, at least, I'd say they're, yeah. they're, they're pretty good. And we don't always see this in, in – um, in studies, you know, you can have a theory and you come out and it, it can change a lot. But I just want mm -hmm. to point that out that it is fairly accurate. And Victor, I know you and I talked about some of this already. If I mess something up because this is complex, you let me know so I can make sure. Yeah, no, this is this is straightforward. All right. So this control group, they looked at flexion. Both the control and, and the control group is blue. This means the patients that didn't do anything. And the prehab patients are orange. All right. So the mm -hmm. patients that did all the exercises I talked about. When they measured their range of motion at baseline, this means this means their normal healthy range of motion, it was at 104 degrees. So if mm -hmm. we look at our knee, it's what maybe would have been about here. Mm -hmm. Then when one group did prehab, they were able to jump that up about 10 degrees, meaning they were getting an extra 10 degrees of, wow. of friction, which is huge, right? And the other group, actually lost a little bit or, or at least probably remained the same. But let me also say too, something I didn't mention, nearly all these stats I'm throwing up here are significant, mm -hmm. which is just a big deal. When something is significantly different, that means it's a much more powerful outcome. It means we can yep. say with more certainty that what we're looking at um, was true. All right. Okay. So yeah, so this group went all the way up to 114 right before surgery. And then we come down here one month after surgery, of course, both took a big dive mm -hmm. during that, that, that surgical uh, course. But notice that our prehab patients still remained at a much, uh, I shouldn't say much, but a decent level of greater range of motion than did our control population. And even three months out of surgery, Victor, which is quite a while now, three months yeah. out of surgery, they still had better results. Wow. So the blue line shows, you know, uh, uh, about where they were after the three months. The blue line is where the control group was. Mm -hmm. Orange line is where the uh, interventional group was, the prehab group. And that might That's be incredible for, for gait analysis and for walking, for, yeah. um, you know, just for things like um, uh, swing through and, mm -hmm. and heel clearance and all that. Like, a few degrees is a big difference. So absolutely. So did that make sense? Kind of that made perfect sense. And I mean, I hope everybody. So you guys, if you have any questions about this, feel free to put your questions in the chat. We'll answer them. But um, if you guys see what Dr. Schrader just said, it's saying he's basically saying that those two groups that were split up, the one group that didn't do anything, um, they're the blue line. The the orange line are the ones who did the leg extensions. They did the workouts that the uh, the scientists basically had them do. The researchers had them do. And look at the difference there. They went up on the in knee flexion before surgery. They had less impact less loss of range of motion 
after surgery and they stayed higher three months, you know, uh, after the surgery as well. So that's an incredible, you know, representation that's saying that, Hey, do your workouts, do your stretching, do everything you can to prehab before surgery and you can have a better outcome. That's incredibly, this is like recent data, uh, Quinn. Yeah. Yeah. This was pretty recent data. I'd have to check. I want to say it was within the last few years. That's incredible. Um, That's incredible. Yeah, I want to say, yeah. I want to say 2019, 2020. It's still pretty. And, and this is, look, this is for a knee replacement. Like, we know that limb lengthening, you're, you're, you're stretching tissue, right? So it's going to have a much, I think, a greater impact on limb lengthening because your flexibility is almost directly impacted, right? So if you prehab, you're going to have less loss of range of motion. You're going to probably hit your lengthening goal easier and you're going to have a faster time to normal walk and getting back to normal life. So incredible data here. Uh, I can't say that 100%, Victor, but I think most of what you said makes sense. Let me yeah. show, we won't go into as much detail as other ones, but let me show this. This is, this is the same group, same everything, right? They measured a lot of different parameters and I just put some up so you, you all can see it. So this is knee extension, right? Our knee, like I said, you get 140 with flexion and extension. You're usually right around zero, maybe a little bit in the negative or a little bit in the positive, but usually, so to speak, you're right around zero. This here shows extension. Again, the groups were about the same at baseline, but before surgery, the one group, and this is our intervention group. Now it swoops down, all right, because you actually want a lower number here. So a lower yeah. number here is good. So what it actually shows is before, right after, and three months after surgery, the prehab patients were able to, you know, get their leg much greater mm. rectus mm -hmm. than the non-prehab patients. All right. <laughs> we were still at nearly 14 degrees of flexion Jeez. three months after. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. So it works with flexion. It works with extension. Okay. So what about uh, how much weight, you know, isometric knee extension? This is devices that we can put around the patient to see how much force they can mm -hmm. kick with or, or, or try to extend their knee against. And again, our intervention group, look how much higher. After prehabilitation, they're at nearing 38. The other group's around 22. Now they both take a big dive during surgery and I would expect mm -hmm. that, right? Mm -hmm. you're not, not going to be able to lift much weight afterwards and nor do you really want to right afterwards, but look where they jump back up to three months Jeez. out. Wow. Um, you know what? Probably 50% higher or so. Mm -hmm. They responded like it, it's, it's interesting too how well they, they came together almost, right? And then the prehab group responded very well, yeah. kind of bounced back to where they were. Um, incredible we look at hip abduction all right so moving the hip we're talking knee replacements but look this is a joint more proximal yeah and look how much better again the group did here Jeez. Um, doing this the same lifting uh with the hip mm -hmm. uh, let me point out too because i don't want to uh, uh i just want to make sure i'm clear on this our our y-axis here changes across these these are the ones i showed earlier so it's not like the jumps are that much bigger. If you look at this first one, I had zero to 140. The next mm -hmm. one is zero to 18. The next one is zero to 40. So while some of these jumps may look bigger, don't don't put too much merit. Right. It's all about the scale of, of the graph itself. Just want to make right. sure it's clear. Mm -hmm. Time up and go. This is a test that they use to see how quickly patients can get out of a chair, 
uh, walk a certain distance and come back. It's a very short distance, but uh, across orthopedic literature, it's used a lot and it's very good at uh, just showing how well patients recover and, and return to good function. So again, same when they started and we would expect the prehab group to do it much quicker. The numbers are lower and of course they do. Mm -hmm. Same with stairs, stair climbing tests. They are told to climb a certain number of stairs, right? So not only are we bringing a range of motion, we're starting to bring in weight. We're starting to bring gravity into the equation. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, again, we want this orange line here. We want our number to be climbing, to ascend and descend these stairs. We want it to be much quicker. So uh, the, the graph speaks for itself. Yeah, it um, sure does. <laughs> this is incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not going to spend, people can uh, take a screenshot and look at this one a little bit more. This was an older study, one of the, 2011, one of the original studies on, on um, total knee replacements, um, which kind of was done in a very similar way. Uh, and again, over 10 years old, but it was one of the originals. They use resistance bands, flexibility training, step training. And this is the this is the mayhem I had to uh, sort through earlier to create those graphs. But what I will say here is they look at these different outcomes: six-minute walk distance, sit-to-stand repetitions, ascending and descending stairs, yada yada. The ones I put in orange are the ones that are significant, meaning that the prehab patients um, did these things. Uh, we can say with a high degree of certainty, much better. Mm. Now the other ones that aren't in orange. Uh, they are still uh, improved, but they're not improved to the point that we can say it's significant. I got you. But in general, this this study, which is one of the earlier studies to to do it uh, on, on this scale with the the orthopedic literature on total knees, um, this study does still show that uh, sit to stand repetitions mean how fast somebody can come up, sit down, which is very important with knee surgery, uh, ascending stairs and peak torque extension with the surgical leg. It's showing just, um, that, that we did see better results. Um, and we can say that with over 95% confidence. Wow. That's, 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 look, I mean, real quick, Quinn, I, I mean, <laughs> it, this makes me so angry that, you know, over the course of, you know, I guess cyborg for life, since I started it in the next month, it'll be four years. Um, but I thought, yeah, I know, right? In my four year. Um, it's incredible how many patients I have talked to, actual patients. I think it's upwards of 700 actual limb lengthening patients between discrepancy and stature uh, and some deformity. But the point is, is that if I was just tracking some of these metrics of, you know, the athletes or the people who worked out versus those who didn't, right? I've seen there is a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of their recovery. And I noticed that the ones who were in shape, working out and doing some sort of regular activity were far more likely to have an expedited recovery than those who didn't. And it's just, I, it's all hearsay because I didn't track anything. It it's is. just it's, you know, it's anecdotal, but, it's anecdotal, I, but I'm, I guarantee, I believe it for sure that you're seeing yeah, it. It just, it's so frustrating. I, I, I should start, I should do something official, um, <laughs> a large enough sample size, something like this meta-analysis, which we're about to talk about, but it's incredible. All of this data that you're bringing here, it's just clicking my head like, wow, this is why this is true. This is true stuff, but okay, go ahead. This is the most recent data out there that I could find. Um, this is what we call a meta-analysis, all right? And again, this is about the best we can do when we really want to uh, study something. 
for lack of a better term. They, they, these groups will basically scan the internet for all the trials out there they can find that fit a specific protocol. All right. And um, this one in particular, which again is from 2023, so it's as new as it can be, mm-hmm. looked at orthopedic surgery, which is what limb lengthening is. And again, this one looked at some other, it wasn't limb lengthening, but it looked at 48 prehab trials. That's a lot. What I showed you was just one, right? Or I showed you two. This looked at 48 trials, which accumulated 3,500 patients. Jeez. The tough part about meta-analysis, especially if I'm trying to portray it to an audience, is it's very, very complex. Even the, the stats behind how they generate the results, I don't understand. And I'm not, I'm not offended to uh, admit that. Um, but understand that it incorporates a lot of data. The downfall to that is these 48 trials, while some may have been better, some may have been worse, we're grouping it all together right? Yep. So you're diluting the good stuff, you're diluting the bad stuff. At the same time, some of these trials may have looked at knee range of motion, right? Some may have looked at hip strength, some may have looked at pain. <laughs> and not all of these trials looked at the same parameters. So how do we how do we organize it? Very hard to do. And that's why meta analyses are very good. And they are the, about the strongest analytics we have out there. But it, I, I can't just say, look, uh, this group did uh, hip stretches and this group did, um, you know, heel rises. I, I, you just can't, you can't put it out there like that. But um, I think even inform this paper, they they looked at maybe 500 plus papers or maybe, maybe I don't remember what they looked into. You can screenshot and go look at yourself. But they had to funnel it down onto what they were really looking at and the best papers they could find out there, right? So this was orthopedic procedures only. And the questions they came and they asked were, are patients doing better before surgery? And are they doing better after surgery? Those are really the two parameters, the two questions they really wanted to answer. They looked at pain. They looked at function. They looked at muscle strength. And they looked at quality of life. And again, understand that doesn't mean all 48 of these trials looked at all that. And even if they did, they probably looked at them by different metrics. Mm-hmm. But this 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 analysis does the best to to see what we can get out of, of what's already out there. And what's nice about meta-analysis, you don't have to go do your own, your <laughs> own trial. You go, you go, uh, I've always loved, you go basically, not steal, you go, you know, generate your work off the hard work of other people. It's, <laughs> it's legal, it's genius, it, and we get a lot of good stuff out of it. But what's nice about meta-analysis is you can do a lot of it just by internet searching and, and mm-hmm. uh, refining so we're going to look at what did this study say, prehab, how do prehab patients do before surgery, all right? So again, knee replacements. What they could say, and I can't give you graphs because they wouldn't make any sense, but what these can say is that with moderate certainty, all right, there's low, medium, and high, or low, moderate, and high. What they could say with moderate certainty that after knee replacements, overall function increased, Mm-hmm. Overall muscle strength increase and overall knee flexion increased with patients that did prehabilitation. That's incredible. All right. So uh, they don't really specify how, but they can generalize and say with moderate certainty. Uh, and I should say prior to surgery, all these patients were doing better, which again, most of what I'm saying, we would expect. They mm-hmm. looked at the replacements. All right. 
with moderate certainty, again, they could say quality of life was improved based on their metrics, muscle strength was improved, and hip abduction was improved. Wow. They also looked at uh, spine surgery. I think mostly uh, lower uh, back surgery, lumbar surgery for pain. And they could mm -hmm. say with high certainty that these patients prior to surgery, after their prehab program had improved back pain, and they could say with moderate certainty, they had increased quality of life. Yeah. None of this is new. N none of it. None of it's new, but it is data to support that any type of prehab or any type of working out uh, is going to put you in a better spot. Wow. The bigger question is after surgery. Um, so what did it say? And, and a little harder to decide because, again, um, some patients are lost to follow-up. There's different ways of measuring. Um, and, and patients recover from surgery very differently, right? Um, so it, it's harder to say. What they found on their total knee replacements is they could say with moderate certainty, and I'm just spitting the facts to you as it is, but with mm -hmm. moderate certainty, function was increased after surgery at six weeks. Wow. All we can say with moderate certainty, that doesn't mean for everybody, that doesn't mean it's an absolute, but likely function will be increased for the average individual at six weeks. They couldn't make any, um, um, you know, they couldn't make any, true statements about hip replacement. Some of this could have been because they just had less data on it. Mm -hmm. Some of it could have been because the data was just clouded. Uh, they couldn't say whether for hip replacements, they're for or against it. Not a big okay. deal. I'll talk about that in a second. And with back pain, they could say with moderate certainty, those patients that did prehab had higher functionality at six months, not six weeks, but six months. Okay. Awesome. awesome. Okay. So again, all this is multifactorial and very, very complicated data that's hard to organize and present in an orderly fashion. But to be honest, even though I didn't show everything I showed in the last slide, I'm, I'm still very happy with these outcomes that we know replacements they're doing with moderate certainty better at six weeks and with spinal surgery, they can say they're doing better at six months. Yeah. So what's awesome is we can build on this, right? When the next thousand or 500 surgeries come out talking about prehab, we can build this data up and we can take this study and other studies and start targeting certain muscle groups, certain procedures, mm -hmm. whatever it is. And we, I, I thoroughly expect this data to, to go up and to improve and to get better over mm -hmm. the next decade or so. Wow. But, and uh, is that, is moderate certainty the lowest rung of certainty that they, okay, gotcha. And, and Quinn, for everybody in the audience that might not understand meta-analysis, you can technically use a meta-analysis for another one, correct? Uh, in the future, or is it like, how, how does that work? Yep. Yep. So you can I mean, kind of hijack and step off the shoulders of another one. So. Correct. You, or people can go pool a different um, a different set of trials based on the question they want to ask. So just because okay. somebody threw um, 48 trials into a meta-analysis doesn't mean somebody else can't use some of those trials and use mm. other trials for their meta-analysis. Right. Um, they can so narrow it down. All the time, all mm -hmm. the time for, for, for any type of big, uh, big discussions or big debates in medicine, people will go out and say, okay, we have a thousand studies on X procedure. 
if I really break it down and try to then incorporate all these into one figure, one paper, what is it saying? Um, Like I said, the results are hard to interpret, but if you trust the statisticians and you use, um, you know, you only bring in very high quality papers, you can take Mm -hmm. a lot away from what they say. Absolutely. Very cool. Very cool. Conclusion of this, I just highlight a few Prehabilitation was associated with moderate improvement in several preoperative outcomes. However, the evidence was inconsistent with the quality of evidence for postoperative outcomes was low to very low. Meaning if we take hips, back, uh, and knee, and we group them all together, they still can't say with true certainty that that it's better, okay? So you can say based on individual things. I, I really think over time, this is going to change. And what they do say is a minimum duration of four to six weeks and two sessions per week may be recommended for patients undergoing orthopedic surgery. Mm, okay? that's, so awesome. that's kind of their way of saying, you know, we maybe we didn't get as good a results as we wanted from it, but they're still recommending that this is probably better than not. The only caveat to that, Victor, is mm-hmm. an elderly patient that may be at risk by doing prehab, meaning uh, okay. somebody that's frail, somebody that's prone to falls, somebody that, whose heart isn't healthy enough. Mm-hmm. Now you try like that through prehab and you may be doing them worse. So okay. it's not for everybody, but for the younger, healthier patient, I think it makes sense. And of course they say additional trials are required. Okay. Um, but I really like this statement here that Despite everything we just talked about, the goods and the bads, they are still recommending four to six weeks, two sessions per week. Yeah, a generalization is always good. And, you know, the funny thing is, is that kind of falls into uh, what I have recommended to most limb lengthening patients. I say, hey, try to shoot for at least eight weeks, but no less than four weeks before surgery to try to get something going, you know, to kind of get yourself into a good routine. And, you know, it seems that like the, the data uh, is given a general, you know, uh, recommendation in that range too. <laughs> yeah. Remember this too. We've talked about three parts on prehabilitation, right? We're about ready to talk about the third. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about exercise, nutrition, yep. and cognitive function. This only looked at exercise. That's the other yeah. thing. Yeah. This only looked at exercise and only looked at a couple types. And, and so it's still very, very limited. But if we start bringing in increasing mental health and, and nutrition and pre-surgical counseling, meaning Hope, you know, helping patients understand what's going to happen to them, mm-hmm, uh, and mm-hmm. then it can go much, much further, I think. That's cool. Uh, we're not going to get into this, Victor, just for sake of time. What this is, it's right. another study uh, where they looked at hospital stays, and they found that the prehab patients stayed one less day in the hospital. Uh, they were discharged home more frequently uh, or earlier, and that the low to, lower total overall cost um was was also there so again just just things to support that so let's get into the the final tier of what we're going to talk about and this just talks about how to prepare psychologically and some of the things that um uh we can do to mentally prepare ourselves for surgery Um, so psychological support is twofold number one reducing anxiety you know there's a lot of anxiety in, in, in surgery the anesthesia scares people the surgery scares people just the diagnosis can scare people. Hey, you have cancer. Hey, you have, um, you know, you, you have a, a heart that's failing, whatever it is. Um, 
the diagnosis obviously can, can scare, and that can be any diagnosis, but they can scare people as well. The pain can scare people. People can think that they're not going to survive the surgery as sometimes they don't in the recovery. So all these can be very high anxiety things that actually cause a, a kind of preliminary stress response. So this wow. is what we talked about at the very beginning, but just these sort of things, just the anxiety itself, this, these, these psychosocial stressors can can really kickstart um, this whole stress reaction in this this brain loop, so to speak. Yeah, and I, I can actually relate this to a lot of limb patients when they think about, let's say, what capacity of weight bearing nail they might get. They're like, what size of what size diameter nail can I get with the the intermedullary canal of my my bone? And they're like, yeah, please yeah. let me get the largest one. And that's that's one that they're fearing because actually I was on in consultation the other day with a patient. He's like, I hope I get the largest nail so I can kind of walk less assisted. And uh, we, we don't know yet when he gets his x-rays, we'll know, but that's that's inducing anxiety, essentially. Sure. And I saw Dr. Paley's recent talk where, you know, he, he rolled out the, uh, I believe, the weight um, that is allowed for each one mm -hmm. and, you know, what size is going to be put in. And I know that that is um, stressful to people because oh, if I understood it right, despite kind of some of the things he was saying, but what he's going to allow people to, to walk on is and I think they already do that with what the what the precise right is yeah. or or the stride whichever mm -hmm. is based on the size of it. If I'm absolutely, if I'm you're 100 correct. Okay, yeah, yep. that's, that's high stress. It is. <laughs> uh, this comes with any type of surgery. So, um, so number one, psychological support reduce that anxiety. You know, whether it's therapy groups, um, support systems, whatever it is. Uh, because the high anxiety can lead to complications within itself. Uh, maximize motivation and empowerment. Um, talk about a few other things, some interventions. So just having positive attitudes is huge. Um, this can help, you know, your mental preparation. Um, just, you know, that whole just dose of happiness can can really help this go smoother. Getting types of like behavioral instructions and relaxation techniques. All these are, are different things you can really look into during your prehab course uh, on top of everything else you're doing for yourself. Um, some people, uh, I called it sensory forecasting. There's probably other words for it, but some people want to know what the experience is going to be like. Can I walk after? How bad is the swelling going to be? How bad is the pain going to be? Some want to go watch it on YouTube prior mm -hmm. to having surgery. That is therapeutic to them you know that helps them sleep better knowing exactly what's happening to their body so um this can be one way and some people might be the complete opposite but if that's something that you think would help you do better that can be one way to kind of strengthen the, the cognitive side of things and then yeah, like Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's one of the reasons why a lot of these uh, listeners they tune in every week when I have uh, let's say roundtables, other patients talking about their experiences. They're just trying to hear what it's like to kind of a, vicariously experience it through them, so they can say, "Oh, okay, I won't be able to walk this, you know, like this during the lengthening." They're just trying to manifest what it might be like, and that does help. It helps tremendously. For sure, and I should have stepped back. The behavioral instructions, kind of what I meant by that, is these are letting the patient know things they can do to maximize their outcome, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, after surgery, you know, I always say elevation, you know, I work on the legs. Elevation is your best friend. The leg is a peninsula mm -hmm. that 
fluid that goes down there has nowhere to go. We need to get it back towards your heart. Right. And it's not like the abdomen that has the ability to expand uh, and kind of absorb high amounts of fluid. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, just behavioral instructions, telling some of these patients what they need to be doing afterwards so that either number one, they can do it. Or number two, if it's like, hey, that way they can maybe get their house in order, right? I hear patients yeah. on the channel all the time. They're like, I had to move my bedroom downstairs so that I right. can walk easier. I had to get a driver, I, you know, these types of things that are just going to make their post-operative course so much easier. And we've Absolutely. talked about a wide spectrum from nutrition to exercise <laughs> to now we're talking about, you know, getting a driver so you can, so you can get around <laughs> afterwards. But these are all lots of different ways to help. Um, relaxation techniques is something I didn't talk about too much either. Everything from hypnosis. Uh, there is actually studies out there on hypnosis and that does help some people to actually muscle relaxation, which is something we didn't talk about doing kind of um, uh, stretching and, and relaxing of different muscle groups to, to help relax in general. Um, support groups are out there. There's always procedure information out there. You can get that from your doctor themselves. Um, and then emotional therapy right? Having somebody there during and, and before. Um, I like this quote here. Mental will is a muscle that needs exercising, just like muscles of the body. <laughs> I like that. This time talking about muscles, know that your brain is, is, is probably the strongest one there. Mm -hmm. um, these can be teachable moments for the patients, you know, helping them get through this. And the last thing that I'm ending on is, uh, second last thing, is these are opportunities for lifelong lifestyle changes. Yeah. Right? So we talked about habits earlier, but what you start doing could very well help catapult you there after surgery to getting you to the um, to the type of person you want to be. Well, Quinn, I, I, I mean, what you just said is one of the, I think the most powerful, one of the most powerful things you brought up today, aspects you talked about today, because that's what I talk about. The, I, it's kind of the cyborg mentality. That's what I call it. Um, when I went through limb lengthening, it gave me this psychological body armor and this mental grit that made me a stronger, yeah, more resilient person to the world that going through limb lengthening made the world not seem as bad or as problematic and every little Thing that used to piss me off doesn't piss me off anymore and i think that limb lengthening just it's an arduous long lonely journey and when you can go through it and prepare yourself properly you have the right support systems in place everything that you learn and go through it makes you a stronger better person a cyborg essentially and that's what i kind of termed the cyborg mentality and you nailed it right on the head right there <laughs> and uh your group is is kind of in a, a group of their own uh you know you're you're your friend may have had gallbladder surgery, right? Or may have had um, uh, a, a C-section or something like that, right? So you can relate. Not <laughs> many are having limb lengthening surgery. That's just the, the fact of the matter. Mm -hmm. um, and I know I've heard about some of these rehab groups and stuff that do get together and that helps all of them get through it. Um, but, but no, you, you do have to have that grit and that resilience and that mental capacity Mm -hmm. uh, get through it because yeah three months of, of lengthening is a long, <laughs> a long time i i can't imagine it um i've not been through it like you have or, or your your followers but um uh, no doubt it's important last Absolutely. thing i'll say all, all uh the best endings come back to the beginning prehab it i mentioned at the beginning it is an older it is an old idea it's not new it was first mentioned 1946 it was actually when world war ii army recruit rejects were trying to <laughs> enlist and what they found is the men were malnourished poorly educated and were actually living in poverty and they weren't wow. fit 
to go to war. What they did is they put him through a two-month program um, and basically built him up. And the quote was, of the 12,000 men who passed through prehab centers, more than 85% improved both physically and mentally. And so uh, that's where it was in 1946. Not much was done until the 80s. But when it came back in the 80s, prehabilitation was used in a sense of preventing sports injuries, you know. So how do we... Um, you know, strengthen the ligaments throughout the body so that basketball players and, and football players aren't getting hurt. You know, what can we do to prevent injury? Now mm-hmm. it's in the last decade to two, it's adopted the framework of what can we do to maximize surgical outcomes. That's incredible. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here we go, guys. This is uh, Dr. Schrader's uh, contact information, as you can see. Uh, Quinn, you can kind of, if you want to go through this, um, Kind of uh, tell me you have his name there, his title, and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. Like I said, uh, anybody's welcome to reach out to me. Um, I'm here in Toledo, Ohio, a uh, small, bit busier city in, in, in Ohio, part of the foot and ankle surgery team up here. I am a resident, all right, so I have another couple of years still, but um, my book that I'm promoting is called, um, temporarily called The Medicine of Movement. The title will likely adapt um as i get to final versions of it but uh, medicine and movement 23 at gmail.com if you have any questions and victor knows i'm always willing to uh help anybody if you want to talk about anything if you want more information on any of this uh even if you need to talk foot and ankle stuff i'm more than happy to to, to spend a few minutes with you um i, I think i'm pretty easy going and uh, low maintenance and not a diva <laughs> so <laughs> you're more than welcome he is one of the most hardworking people I know, and he's super busy. He's just being super humble and modest right here. But like this guy, not only is he a dad and a husband, but he's also a full-time, you know, uh, resident. And he's also working like 50, you know, what was it? Like 50 hours a day. I'm just going to know. Yeah. <laughs> but he's super busy. But um, yeah, guys, uh, more about Quinn's book. I actually put a link in the description. If you want to check it out, you can actually click on that link. Um, I don't have the official URL yet. We're going to get that uh, tacked onto Cyborg for Life slash Quinn's book or something like that. But here it is right here. Um, if you click Click the link below. Uh, you can get no- notified of the book launch, the medicine of movement, or whatever he titles it. It's still pending. Um, but this is him, Dr. Quinn Schrader. Um, and all you would do is click the link, put your first name, email in. Uh, where'd you hear about it? Basically, you heard, uh, sorry, current status, your prospective patient, whatever you are. Um, and what, what would interest you? Would you be limb lengthening or are you watching as a, a person who has some sort of amputation or something like that? Where you hear of it, just press all this, press keep me posted. And basically, we're just keeping a tally of everybody that opts into this list and we'll send you a notification uh, through email once we're approaching that time for Quinn's book to uh, launch. So definitely just go ahead and click that link. Um, I'll have it on Cyborg Life at some time in the next month or so. We're going to put it on there and we're going to be talking more about it. So uh, it's going to be a cool book. So check it out. Cool. Thanks all right. You have to pay it for that or is that? that you it's all free (laughs) you're my guy quinn so Mm -hmm. all right guys so now we're going to do it i know that was a very uh in-depth comprehensive amazing presentation on prehabilitation it's something that you should really mind uh when you approach a surgery like limb lengthening uh 
for discrepancy, stature, or even deformity reconstruction. It's a super important aspect of it. But right now, we're going to uh, open the mic up to you guys in the live Q&A. So if you have questions for Dr. Schrader, we're going to go ahead and pop them on the screen here, and he's going to take a little bit of time to answer it. Um, is your son okay? Is Theron okay right now, Quinn? Uh, Theron's good. I heard a, a couple a couple cries, but I think he's doing all right. He's okay. So we got he a little supports, time. He supports your, your community as well. So. Awesome. <laughs> he supports it. I, and I wouldn't, be here without, I wouldn't be here without my wife and, and my son. So I, I that's right. That's right. Say hi to Brandy for me. I will say hi to her for you. And I think cool. mom and dad maybe in Hopton. I'll say hi to them if they're out there too. That'd be awesome. I couldn't be here without them either. I should say that. So. I'm a dad trader. There we go. Okay. Um. So Quinn, here's the first question from uh, Jaina. He's saying how to loosen stiff ankles, um, grinding stiff or circular motions. What do you recommend? Yeah. Um, so number one, how, you know, how old is the patient? Are they actually getting true grinding? Um, so you, you have through your ankle and I mentioned you have an ankle joint, you have a subtalar joint, which is kind of the ankle joint helps you go up and down the subtalar joint in and out. So you really need to hit both of them. If you are wanting to stretch those, you can do simple things from ABCDs. You've probably heard that before after surgery. If nobody knows what it is, take your foot and make the A, make a B, make a C. This is really going to start reducing some of that swelling, stretching some of those ligaments out. If you're talking prior to surgery or just when you're exercising in general, I do do a lot of, um, I recommend heel, um, heel rises. I recommend um, uh, elastic bands. Uh, you can either use elastic bands or you can use towels to kind mm. of um, wrap around your foot to, to really help stretch that. And what I will say with your stiff ankle, if you weren't on earlier, um, make sure you're also stretching that knee, that gastroc that attaches into your heel bone goes up past the knee. And if you're not addressing that, that can kind of um, go down the chain that way. So um, as far as the grinding, um, if you're an older uh, woman or gentleman, um, you know, you can always get some x-rays to make sure this isn't early uh, arthritis. So very cool. Awesome. Uh, so this next one, he's saying, thank you for the room attic on fire analogy. It was very helpful. <laughs> See, I told you it was a good one. Uh, but his follow-up was, uh, Dr. Schrader, my right foot was run over by a car as a child, and it's much flatter than my left. How do I strengthen the ankle and increase flexibility? So you talked a little bit about that, but. Yeah. Hard to say without an x-ray. Um, people's arches collapse all the time. Uh, our feet get flatter as we age. And that's why sometimes you don't fit in a shoe gear. He has a different issue here though, being run over by a car. I would hope you didn't have any Liz Frank damage. Uh, that's kind of the keystone of the foot, meaning that's what holds up your arch. If that's damaged, I think about it almost like the ACL of the foot is, is the Liz Frank ligament. You know, if that goes, you have a lot of instability. I wouldn't be able to say without an x-ray how to regain that arch. There may be different types of surgery, such as tendon balancing, tendon shortening, strengthening your PT tendon. If you want to look up how to strengthen your posterior tibialis tendon, um, that can really help with that. Of course, wearing good shoe gear that can help support that would be good as well. Ruling out any kind of limb length discrepancy. If you're having pain elsewhere in other joints, let me explain why that is. <clears throat> if you were flatter on one side, you know, I'm trying to see if I'm, if one foot is this and one foot is this, this, you're actually probably leaning towards the flatter foot because your whole limb, your whole limb essentially on that side is flatter. So your 
you're, you're, you may even have some dip in your hip or, or some sort of discrepancy. I can't say that for sure, but that's always something you can look into. Um, but the same stretches I just mentioned as far as strengthening your ankles, what I would mention there, hitting all four planes, dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, inversion, eversion, um, is going to help both with flexibility and with stability. Very good. Awesome. And if he did have a discrepancy and he's getting lengthening, could you make up for it in a tibial lengthening or femur lengthening? That's a question for, for your experts. I don't want to put words in their mouth. Um, it w- I, my guess their answer would be it would depend on how big the discrepancy is. You know, is it over half a centimeter? Um, because a lot of us have limb link discrepancies and we do just fine with it. But if we start talking that somebody has a very bad ankle fracture, foot fracture, and they've lost a centimeter or two to where they are really compensating, not only in the hips and the knees, but the shoulders, the spine, scoliosis, mm-hmm. it, and it can really hurt. Um, so, um, um, there, there may be a possibility that'd be for your surgeon that they can, you know, if you're a centimeter short, two centimeters short, give you that extra, that extra on it. I can't answer that. For, okay. For the All right. They're just talking amongst themselves. And then we have another one here from the same guy. He's saying, uh, Dr. Schrader, what about the need to dramatically increase our calorie intake? Um, I'm a thousand calories above maintenance and I already, am already getting immense amounts of protein. So I got to add carbs. So this is the nutrition aspect we spoke about earlier. Yeah. So if you're already uh, well above uh, your intake, I would I would stick with what you're doing. What I would make sure is that the calories you're getting is spread out evenly um, based on what we talked about earlier, that you're getting those calories uh, through the right amount of protein, carbs, and fat. Um, you can go back earlier to the chat and look at that. Um, but if you're already a thousand above your maintenance uh, and Victor, you might even know more than me. I know you are heavy into nutrition. It's not my yeah. forte per se, but mm-hmm. uh, I'd, I'd also be interested to see your opinion on it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that, you know, he's saying, um, what about the, so I, I think that you, what you said earlier about, um, the, the, the limb being lengthened is a small portion of the overall body. I think it's, uh, something that you kind of, it's one of my favorite, uh, statements that I say to people, patients is lengthen and observe, right? Like if you notice that you're not recovering as well, or if you're, you, you want to be in a slight surplus, you definitely want to be in a slight surplus because you don't want to be in a deficit when your body's trying to allocate all these resources to heal you. But I don't think you need to be too far above maintenance because then you're going to gain unnecessary body fat, which is you know, it's unnecessary, right? You're just having to burn it off later. Um, but at the same time, if you're doing, let's say both femurs and you're going for eight centimeters, that's a lot of tissue that's being, you know, you know, formed. So I think that early on, you can kind of gradually increase your caloric intake, right? Because as the tissue is being regenerated in that gap, um, you're going to need more and more calories. Again, we're going to need a surgeon's intake on the uh, input on this. But what do you think, Quinn? I think yeah, the same. I, I think the, the I appreciate the question. It's kind of out of context too. I mean, if they're in the middle of leg lengthening, I would think you know the, the higher calorie intake would be great. Um, mm-hmm. Just like you said, so that you 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 can tap into that surplus, yeah. and that you are getting some of these molecules, uh, macro and micro from your mm-hmm. diet, you're not having to pull it from storage areas in your body. If you have to, that's fine. But if we can get it through the diet and leave everything else, uh, stagnant, that would be yep. great. Too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, All yeah, right. Hard, hard to put numbers on, on nutrition. So. Yeah, it is. That's, what's a very individual thing. Uh, Lobo, I don't know how to swim or come a bike. Will it be enough? Oh, okay. So he's asking about the cardio aspect here. So like, what's a good form of cardio besides yeah, swimming? Yeah. 
Yeah, we didn't talk about swimming or cardio. Uh, there are some studies out there in prehab that are doing cycling, and they're doing it both uh, leg cycling and the patients mm-hmm. that are doing arm cycling. So mm-hmm. um, absolutely. I mean, from a, a podiatric physician's point of view too, um, long running is, and I do it, but uh, cycling is probably actually better for you. It's easier on the joints, less earlier onset arthritis. Um, I don't get as much satisfaction out of it, but you know, uh, cycling really in the long run is probably better and swimming maybe even better because you're just using, you know, every muscle in the body at that point. Uh, Lobo, I would say if you can swim or cycle, if that's part of your prehab or your rehab, uh, a portion of any type of surgery, do it. It's awesome. Yeah. And he's saying, uh, swimming is good for stretching too, is right. Right. Yeah. He's asking. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Um, you know, even golfing, uh, pickleball, all these things are better than doing nothing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let's see winning stream so far. They love it. Okay. Uh, this one, um, saying from a Facebook user in the Facebook group, but I posted there, he said, are you going to have any famous celebrities? (laughs) I can't quote on that. What, what I will say is there have been, um, I have talked to one celebrity's mother that we are trying. And when I say celebrity, celebrity for sure. Um, Oh, wow who has underwent a, a certain procedure, not limb lengthening, certain procedure I'm looking to put in my book. Um, I will say um, I've had some awesome doctors and not just orthopedic surgeons, some vascular surgeons, some infectious disease surgeons, uh, emergency medicine uh, doctors. Uh, I said infectious disease doctors, not infectious disease surgeons, uh, emergency medicine doctors who I have worked with or who have connected me um, that, um, um, I would say are pretty prominent in their field. And I'm, I am blessed and fortunate that people have given what they have. I will give a shout out here to Dr. Holworth, um, hospital, especially surgery. Uh, we did a, a entire chapter on osteointegration and this man went above and beyond edited, uh, from a scientific mind, a lot of what I said and helped me get in touch with a prosthetist who is an amputee himself and other people across the world um, that are benefiting from osseo. So that's just one example. So um, no celebrity locked in yet. I would say I have people of higher caliber. Yeah. I am working on an advancement for the book, meaning right now I actually took this week off. I told you I'd come on here and I am submitting a, um, it's called a, um, a submission package or submission proposal to uh, some agents and some editors to try to get an advancement. And I think that will help push things forward too. So um, like I said, the book's about halfway done. It's it's only a matter of when. And if anybody has recommendations, there's still some, some open concepts within it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know that we, we did have uh did you, did you speak to Rich in your book? I do. I do. Rich. Yes. Rich will yeah, be in there. Um, yeah. um, so yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I also know, I, I think I know, I'm not going to say the name, but I think I know the mother of the, the, the celebrity that you're talking about. You told me. Yeah. 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 That's very cool. We're trying to work that out right now. So. That's cool. That's cool. Guys, I'm telling you this book, like Quinn's very like, or Dr. Schrader is very humble and modest, but I'm, I swear, like, I'm not one to read books that much. Like, I listen to audiobooks, but when I read some of the rough drafts and chapters that he sent me, I was hooked. Like, I, I couldn't put it down. It's like the, the, it just like latched me on. I was like, 
flipping pages. Like here, Victor, here's a 30 page chapter. Read this. I, I read it in two hours. I never read anything in two hours. So it's very, very good. I swear to you. Like I am, I've recommended like three books on this channel before. Grit by Angela Duckworth is one of my favorite books. Um, Quinn's book is going to be <laughs> right up there. I'm, I swear it's so good. So definitely get on that notification list. All I have to do is click that link in the uh, description, put your information in, you'll get notified. If not, I'm going to do like a video specifically when it launches. So you guys need to get that book. All right, let's get back yeah. to it. And it talks about limb lengthening is one portion in it. There's another chapter on Ilzarov and, and the history mm -hmm. of one of the greatest men and surgeons out there. The yep. other 14 chapters are on very very different subjects it's 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 a lot of variety and if you're adhd you only have to read one chapter and i move you on to a very new topic <laughs> on the next one so but if you guys are real true cyborgs you'll appreciate all of it it's all you know a lot of, <laughs> it, is cyborg. A lot of it is cyborg related yeah yeah, yeah. And, and you know the funny thing is um uh what is it it's um I was going to say, there's one one chapter in there that you have this really good. Oh, it's, it, yeah, it's, that's what it is. They're all told. A lot of them are told through um, patient stories, right? They're really, really good. You interview. You actually go. He Quinn came here to Baltimore to interview me in person. He went yeah, to. You're going to uh, be in the book too. You, you didn't. Yeah, yeah, me. exactly. Right. He goes to the actual patients and the people in the book, and he interviews them in person, and it's incredible. So he's not just you know doing a Zoom call or call him on the phone he'll do that too but he'll actually go out and meet them so this is a really well-researched book but it's really being told through the patient through quinn so it's yeah, fantastic and, and he's a really good surgeons doing cool things allow me to come watch the surgeries too so yeah. that I, I am literally an arm's length i'm not doing the surgery myself but you can't get much closer than that i do also have portions end of surgeries i've done um that i think bring a very humanistic uh, side to it um, yeah so yeah yeah, absolutely. Very cool. All Thanks. right. Let's see. Facebook user. Are you going to be in the documentary called Taller to discuss the history of limb lengthening? <laughs> so, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, this might be this might be actually might be rich in the Facebook. <laughs> I, I do have a small segment in there. When uh, last video I did for you, Victor, Rich, yeah. Rich reached out to me and said he thought it'd be a really cool uh, portion to put in just such a different side of things on where limb lengthening, where did this bizarre treatment start? Um, we mentioned Dr. Paley in it, but yep. his predecessor, Dr. Ilazarov, who I'd never got the fortune of meeting, um, um, and some of the, even, even other limb lengtheners and science physicians, research physicians from the early 1900s that were doing it. So uh, we, we give a quick six minutes, seven minute synopsis on that. I know Rich is still doing a lot of editing on that. So hopefully it makes the cut, but yeah. the goal is forward too. Yeah. Absolutely, man. That's good. All right, guys, do you have any other questions for Dr. Schrader? Uh, this has been a fantastic presentation on prehab. Like I said, the replay is going to be up on the channel. Um, I'll put the timestamps. Give me a few days. It was a long one, but it's a very good one. In fact, I think it's one of the most important ones you can do if you're a prospective patient going into this. Um, we also have, I'll put, uh, Dr. Schrader's contact information that he had on that last slide, I'll put it below the description after we get off the stream here so you guys can reach out to him, be very respectful. He's a very busy man, uh, but at the same time, he's also open and he's very fast and responsive. He'll, he'll, if you have some sort of academic paper you want him to look up or some sort of study, he'll bounce uh, emails back and forth. But like, seriously, guys, go check out his book, put your information on that notification form. Or just be, you know, stay, stay tuned. Cause when it does drop, you know, I'm going to be promoting like crazy. So, <laughs> all right, guys, any other questions for Dr. Schrader? If not, um, Quinn, is there anything else you want to say to everybody watching, uh, 
before we sign off? No, Victor, again, I'm, I'm here for you and I'm here for you guys. And I, I love what you're doing and uh, everybody that's going through limb length and it uses Victor. You don't know what kind of advocate you have for you and what he does behind the scenes for you. And he sends me pictures of he'll stay up till midnight answering your guys's question. And, um, what, what he's doing, uh, everyone in, in, in this, you know, in this realm is, is very, uh, happy to have you and, and pleased to have you. And, and all, all I'm going to say is keep going, Victor, you're, you're going to do big things. I told you that a year ago when we met, you're going to do big things. So I appreciate that. Glenn. seriously do, man. Yep. It's incredible to have you on. Thanks so much for coming on to do the, uh, presentation on prehab. Um, there you go. Ben Minoza, one of the MVPs of the channel says, I appreciate it. It was an awesome stream. I hope to see you again, Dr. Quinn, uh, Dr. Schrader. He will be back. You can guarantee it. We'll be doing all kinds of stuff together, but, um, I'm always happy too, Victor, if anybody has, you know, and I'll put it out there on non-limb lengthening stuff, you know, yeah. just general surgery stuff, uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe other people don't come on and talk about much. Happy yeah. send the, send you to the topic. I'm happy to look it up and give something small on it. Always you see that guys? He's there. He's going to be the medical consultant for Cyborg for Life one day. So <laughs> I can see that happening. Seriously, once we get big and worldwide, international, Dr. Quinshaw will be right there. So, all right, guys, that is uh, episode 109 of uh, Limb Lengthening Live with Dr. Quinn Schrader. Like I said, all his contact information is in the description below, as well as his link to his book notification form. So fill that out if you want to get notified of his book drop. Uh, Quinn, I want to say thank you for coming on. Uh, say hi to the wife, Brandy, and uh, little Theron. Give him a handshake for me. And I uh, can't wait to have you back on. We'll definitely be back at some point, Victor. Appreciate it. Awesome, guys. All right, guys. Thanks so much. And this is Victor from Cyborg Life. Signing out. See you next time. Bye.